0: Welcome to The Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap
1: Emporium. Today, we're continuing our coverage of PBS's adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. This is episode three. If you watched it on PBS, it was two hours and this is the last hour. We, as a working title, have been using where Beckett and Susan ugly cry and then try to decide if they liked this version.
0: Yes, pretty Accurate,
1: really? (laughs) Our cold open is a beautiful country scene. There's bouncy music. Father is harvesting red currants. And a whole year has passed since there were life changes for the March family. Some very big, some unnaturally big.
0: So those are currants. And I didn't know, and I will tell you that even pre-Hunger Games, (laughs) I am super leery of all berries. It must have been hammered into me about berries and poison control (laughs) or something as a child. Maybe I'm just a city person, but those berries look like what my dad always called bird berries, as in only for birds. (laughs)
1: For some reason, I knew they were red currants. And I I mean, we never grew them, but
0: that's what's in the book, too. So maybe we are used to that. So yeah, maybe it was like
1: subliminally it was in my head.
0: Joe, in voiceover fashion, tells us that it's been a year since episode two, or should we say since Meg got married. Also, that she has put her novel, the one that was so full of controversy and um, her fight with her father. She put that novel out into the world and it tanked. And this novel, Joe's novel, is a stand-in for Louisa May Alcott's failed novel from 1864 called Moods. So we will link you to that. You can read the whole thing via Project Gutenberg. But that took so long to write and came back from publishers and editors so chopped up and carved and subject to the whims of everybody that it ended up not being a very commercial success. Mm -hmm. So we see Meg... And she is, I mean, what's the word, ginormous? (laughs) That's it. Unnaturally big is the word that I used a few minutes ago, but yes. It's pretty alarming. And I, myself, having a transverse baby who was only four pounds, um, was at my own baby shower at eight months. People were saying, wait, we are holding this way too early. And then my son was born
1: a week later.
0: (laughs) So I'm the polar opposite of Meg.
1: Well, I would have loved to have carried like Meg did, just all out in front, because I was one of those, you know, I'm pregnant in my ankles kind of people all the Mm -hmm. way up to my head. Yeah, everything was fat. And there's a little hint or insight into book
0: Amy's skill with fashion on a budget. She was famous for that. Yeah, she just added
1: frills. (laughs) It was a beautiful suit, though. I mean, they did a very nice job with it. It It did look like (laughs) a sheet on the (laughs) bottom. <laughs> well, she didn't really have too many options. That's true, and, you know. At the time, the women were still wearing corsets while they were pregnant. They were special, they had like e- extra panels on the sides, like lace panels to allow for a little more expansion, but they were still wearing corsets.
0: Poor Meg, poor everybody. So we go upstairs and we get a little sight of Joe trying to write her diary. This diary in fact has been the voiceover that we've been hearing this whole time, and we see Hannah and Mrs. March in the kitchen. Hannah says she's a terrible big size for a terrible small girl. But Marmy, of course, is putting it all out of her mind. No, she's young. She's strong. She will be fine. She'll be fine. And they, of course, don't know there's twins in there.
1: No. Although I don't know why it didn't occur to them. Well, at all. I mean, yeah. it's a possibility. It's not like it's never happened. But I just loved Hannah's face. Like, Sure, lady, whatever you say. <laughs> no, she wasn't buying that for a second. No, no. OK,
0: so I was under the impression that maternal mortality was really, really high. And the only statistic I could find was around 2% per birth. So you have a 1 in 50 chance of dying, which is high, but not as high as I thought it was. I thought it was more like 1 in 10 or 11. I don't know. I thought what? it was a lot higher. Yeah, Technically, the odds are in your favor. Of course, that applies to every pregnancy. You have a 1 in 50 chance of dying. Mm -hmm. But Hannah's concerns are not misplaced, I guess is what I'm saying. That's not super good odds. No, no, not at all. A house is full of stories, says Joe's voice. Lives unfolding. Lives waiting to take flight. Beth looks, obviously, and with great on-the-nosedness, out the window and a flock of geese flies by outside and she has a very beautiful profile. It's sad and wistful and full of foreshadowing. I'm just going to say welcome to the Weeping Express. Please keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times.
1: <laughs> you have
0: just boarded the ride that you cannot get off of.
1: No, no. I did not sit down with a box of Kleenex next to me because no adaptation has done anything to me i mean i've you know i was sad it got a little misty but plowed right through it that's foreshadowing Fancy Amy and Kooky Joe set out to pay and repay some social calls.
0: Okay, Amy's fighting a losing battle to make Joe fashionable. I'll tell you that right now. I will give her credit for trying. I think Book Joe was fine. I think she was just as fashionable. I think Amy had had a lot more influence on Book Joe, but Movie Joe, we had to be shown visually that she was unacceptable with the ugly Macintosh. That raincoat is horrible. Even I can see that. (laughs) Um I will give Amy credit for at least being cheerful in her defeat. She tried, Joe failed,
1: Sally forth. <laughs> <laughs> I, Joe failed, but I think she added a little extra oomph to her failure just to kind of tease Amy.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's like, all right, I'm not going to be acceptable in her eyes. So I'm going to go way overboard.
0: Uh, She succeeded. I'll tell you that. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Because Amy won't be drawn. She has a good temper. If you see her, she just says, "Okay," you know, loop it up in the street, trail it in the house. And she has a smile on her face like, all right. Chachi, that's fine. We're going (laughs) to go anyway. You didn't get out of it. Let's go.
1: Uh, I guess so. But, man, she was super kooky. Super kooky Joe in this scene, I thought. I did love that. The gown up in the street and trail in the house. That seems like there should be some kind of, you know, life metaphor in there for all of us. I don't know what it is, so.
0: Well, the no-shoe house thing, maybe. You know, please do not drag your dress through the horse poop and bring it into my parquet floor.
1: Maybe. Or maybe it's like, be careful when you're out in public, but when you're at home, you can relax and just let everything trail. Well, there you go. That's That's nice. nice. You know what, the Macintosh, the jacket, it was only created in 1823. This chemist put two fabrics together and then covered them in rubber and boom, the raincoat was born. I
0: think they stank though. And I think if it got a little warm, you would end up being very sticky. There's no uh, skin
1: to fabric contact though, because we are very well covered here in the 1800s. (laughs) Like if you wore a short sleeve shirt now with a raincoat and it kind of stuck to you, that'd be gross. But back then there was they had a layer of clothing.
0: Yeah, but your arms would stick to your sides.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) At her very adorable house, a very pregnant and domestic Meg finds herself in a pause, pause jam. Okay. I have a problem with this
0: scene because it is an allusion only to a glorious scene from the book where John and Meg have their first fight and Meg ends up crying in the kitchen. Now what... Did we even put this scene for in the movie if they're not
1: giving us the payoff? I don't get it. I don't. In the book, she had some domestic skills and she had, you know, achieved some things. This makes her look like she was completely a bumbling idiot, where in this particular scene, she was having a really off day in the book. I thought it was a good scene. You know, she had said, bring your friends home anytime. And
0: he had forgotten that she was going to try to make jelly and she didn't want to ask for the recipe. She'd seen Hannah do it. She was going to make it and be proud and have a whole shelf pinterest worthy shelf of red jelly up on the shelf when he came home and it didn't work and it was too hot and it didn't gel and the glass broke and she was really upset and then he comes home with this guest to find his wife sad and the house in chaos and he was a little miffed because she had told him to bring a friend back anytime and the one time he did he was really embarrassed and then they had a fight and i thought i would have liked to see that now what are we seeing now look how her tummy is preventing her from cooking boo
1: yeah, and if you didn't know the book scene, you would think that she knew nothing about the domestic arts at all. Do you, have you ever made currant jelly?
0: I've never touched a currant. You didn't
1: recognize the fruit, so
0: I guess. Meg needed to get a hold of some cranberry. She's in the right part of the country. <laughs> That's right. Cranberry jelly will make itself in moments and you put it away and it's
1: red and looks exactly the same on the shelf. I'm, I'm laughing here because I wrote down the same thing. Better cranberries. But you and I have the same cranberry sauce recipe. Martha Stewart's currant jelly only has three ingredients, currants, sugar and water. And she only has you boiling it, simmering it rather for 10 minutes.
0: So does it gel itself? What was Meg's damage
1: then? Yeah, that's the question
0: I'm having. Oh, that said, Mm -hmm. we're again (laughs) (laughs) overanalyzing a recipe that is, I mean, the scene that we even want is not even in this movie. So I don't know why we're. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, also, okay, one more talk about jelly, and then we have to move on. I was watching The Great British Baking Show, and Mary Berry, who is basically the Julia Child of the baking world in Britain, British listeners will know who it is. I have never heard of her before I watched, you know, it's just one of the judges um, to me. But, you know, she's an icon. She actually told one of the contestants on this latest episode that I'm watching, couldn't tell you what season, some season that's on Netflix, that she did not believe that the flavors of peanut butter and grape jam went well together at all.
1: Hey, they live in Concord. Is that where the grape comes from? (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) I said to her out loud in my
0: living room, every American over the age of two has just fallen down dead. (laughs) Dear Mary Berry. Yes, it goes very well together.
1: Well, in my head, the first thing I thought was, well, I don't think the flavors of milk and tea go very well together.
0: Ooh, them's fine words. I know. I know. Send all correspondence to
1: (laughs) Susan. Speaking of tea, (laughs) in our next scene, Joe and Amy have tea at Aunt March's house with Aunt Carol and cousin Florence. And the different lives of all the cousins are compared. But there's like other conversation going on.
0: Okay. Similarly, here we have been cheated out of the buildup for this scene. All the calls Amy and Joe make before they get to this one, where Joe keeps following Amy's instructions to the letter. If you've ever had somebody at work that does that. oh, They don't interpret. They do exactly what you say to get back at you. Well, that's what Joe's been doing all afternoon. And hijinks have ensued. So we are missing their dynamic. We're also missing Joe's sense of comedy and her intelligence. And all we're left with is Joe being a pill, which is fine. This mood and this conversation was in the book, but I wish we had seen all the buildup because that's what in the book is making Joe so contrary right now. Not that she is just a curmudgeon. She has just had quite an afternoon and is worn out and is really sick of trying to be polite to people and sick of not being herself, frankly. So she's just decided that the veneer is coming off and these are her family and who cares? And, you know, to her detriment, yes. But I wish that we had seen those other, at least one other call to make sense of this one.
1: Yeah. Other than the, you know, the little conversation they had leaving the house, our our notes on this are almost identical. (laughs) We do not share a brain, I swear. Um, Although I did like, again, I did like um, Angela Lansbury in this scene. Is she almost for just a second sounded like she was proud of Joe when Joe says something about her scribbling and Aunt Carol asks if that's art. And Aunt March replies, no, Josephine writes. And I'm thinking, oh, she's proud of her niece. She's actually telling her that. And then she says she writes romances in a general way with a dash of spectacular thrown in. Which Ooh. says to me that Aunt March
0: has read them. Excellent point. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So I am guessing that Aunt Carol is one of Father's sisters because Carol is her last name. Her name's Mary Carol in the book. So I'm guessing she used to be a March and is now a Carol by marriage. And also, Book Amy has been wearing this cousin Florence's hand me down clothes for her whole entire life. She was the only one smaller than cousin Florence. She's been subjected to Florence's hand. Downs, and she has been basically raised on how Florence has it better and easier f- for the entirety of her existence.
1: <laughs> now, having just even that little bit of information going into this scene. That would have added a little bit.
0: Yes, I think so. But so Aunt Carol says that, quote, Florence's first season was such a success that we're intending a whole new program for her, by which I'm guessing no. Florence did not emerge as some kind of glittering butterfly during her first season, or else she'd be engaged right now, right? By the standards (laughs) and speed of society, right?
1: Essentially what I wrote in my notes.
0: (laughs) So in the book, there is the following sentence. If Joe had only known what happiness was wavering in the balance for one of them, she would have turned dove-like in a minute. There is something pending. Aunt Carol is not
1: asking random questions. Yeah, these are really specific. Do you speak any other languages, (laughs) for instance? And Joe just flips off these snotty answers. Like, oh, come on, girl. Be nice to your aunt. And then Aunt Carol asks if the
0: girls have been involved with any charity work. And of course, they have their whole lives. Amy answers very politely. Yes, indeed. Marmee raises this way. In fact, I'm tending a table for the Ladies Aid Society. Another scene in the book I kind of wish we'd seen because Lori comes out being a big hero because he, at Joe's direction, goes and buys all of Amy's fundraising things with all his college mm-hmm. friends. And I, you know, can we not just... Have some of this... completely agree. So anyway, there's that, Um, but Joe dismisses the whole thing and calls it charity schemes, even though in reality she's just as involved in the ladies aid making money as Amy was in the book. But anyway, she purposely just contradicts every single thing that Aunt Carol says, and note the telling glances between the two ladies, but even Florence is like, whoa, sister, whoa. Florence knows, but she's not going to say anything. No.
1: And then when Joe says that she makes money from her writing. Aunt March's face, you've talked about the last episode or the one before that. She looked like a turtle. Yeah. Aunt March did. Yeah. This time she looked like a turtle going into her shell cuz she just kind of <laughs> sat there and shuddered and tried to make herself look invisible. Like, "Oh my gosh, she's talking about getting paid." Well, so that happened. Fates have been sealed. More on that in about a minute. <laughs> In the next scene, Joe and Beth are in bed, and Joe is worried about her freckled and troubled sister who isn't quite in a sharing mood. Joe wakes up to...
0: Beth who looks like she's in some amount of pain and she says don't tell Marmee I am in a little pain but I can bear it and Joe just basically says I wish you would tell me what is troubling you I wish you would talk to me and Beth simply says not yet not yet and wants to have her head stroke just a little comfort but not ready to talk about whatever it is yet and that's all we get Just another little seal on their relationship and how much they really care for each other.
1: Even um, the way they're sleeping in the bed, they're not like off to the sides, you know, pretending they were in their own beds. They are right next to each other. You know, their pillows are smashed together. Their bodies are touching. That's how they sleep is just kind of cocooned up in each other. Very close. Very close. And Beth actually cries a tear. There's a tear that runs down her face between her and Meghan Markle. Freckles are going to come back in. Mark (laughs) my words. (laughs) The March family next has dinner and there are conflicting emotions when travel plans for one of the sisters is announced.
0: Aunt Carol is going on a tour to Europe says Marmee. And she says she needs a companion for Florence. And so she has asked and Joe says, me. No, says Marmee. Very gently, Amy. She's asked Amy to go. And here's father at the end of the table, driving in the knife. London, Edinburgh, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Venice, Athens, Rome. <laughs> well, blah, 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 blah. There's got to be some complicated travel arrangements. Blah, blah, blah. You know, he. we don't even know what's happening. She wants me to go to Europe, says Amy. I think father is so modern. And actually, I felt a little love to him, which isn't very common for me, when he says, I actually begged her to take you off my hands. ha, ha. <laughs> 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 He sounds like a modern dad, like joking around. But as the parent of only one child, I ask you, I ask all of you who have more than one child, how hard is it to be happy for one of your children, knowing that the other one is devastated by the same thing? And I am looking at Marmy, walking that line and I will say that book
1: Marmy had the sense to tell Joe in private first. I'm just saying. Yes, that is definitely the better way to do this whole thing. Although why Joe would have thought it was her is beyond me based on what they showed in this particular episode. It's like, why would they take you? You were nasty to her. You didn't answer her questions the way you know she wanted you to answer them. So I, I don't know why she was so crushed, but yes, I agree. Taking her Joe off on her own was the way to do it. But since she did it at the table, I thought that she did a good job, you know, walking that line because you don't want to make waves, right? So, yeah, it's a tough thing. And even if she had told her off to the side, she'd still have to deal with the moment when Amy and Joe were in the same room together and Joe is crushed and Amy is super excited. Yeah, I thought she as a parenting thing, I thought she did a good job in this scene. In the next scene, Marmy does what she should have done in the first place and what she did in the book. And she and Joe talk away from the rest of the family about how and why life isn't fair for Joe.
0: It isn't fair, Marmy, says Joe. Amy gets all the fun and all I ever do is work. Now, technically, Joe, Amy's been working as aunt march's companion and with the lady's aid, so she has been working but this right here is louisa may alcott leaking out she herself had to work as a servant to be able to stay in her own rich relations houses where her own little sister may on which amy is based was an invited guest who ate with the family and got dresses bought for her and went on excursions in their carriage and this and that um that is the bald unfairness to which this scene refers. Not movie, Amy, I don't think.
1: Joe did it herself. And if you want to talk about having fun, she sure looked like she was having fun when she was, you know, blowing all those questions on purpose that Aunt Carol was asking her. She looked like she was having a good time.
0: Well, yes, the blame <laughs> does need to rest upon Joe, And I think she is feeling like she blew it and she... The fact is she did blow it. I think it's the whole, I was so close and I ruined it for myself. I think mm-hmm. she's projecting onto Amy. I, Amy didn't do anything to
1: her. So. Right. And I think she's taking part of her, like her failed novel. You know, she put a lot of effort and a lot of faith and a lot of hope into it. And it tanked. And the year of non-writing that she's had. So maybe she was looking like, oh, good, Europe, this is a great escape for me. It's I'm entitled to it because I've been bringing money in for my family and working so hard. And, oh, it doesn't happen. It actually gets given to the actual entitled child. So I get her emotions here. I love the part where Marmee had to remind Joe that she'd kind of have to fake her way through Europe. If she had gone, because she would have to not be herself. With Aunt Carol and Florence.
0: <laughs> That's pretty why. She'd have to be amiable and patient, and which Joe would definitely have to create out of whole cloth because she doesn't have it.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that was a nice spin, I thought. Joe and Lori are sulking about where they are in life, but they're interrupted by Beth with news of Meg and, oh my gosh, is he smoking? He's 100% smoking. That is actually a part of the book.
0: The sisters are trying to get him to stop smoking because it's a habit he picked up from the cool kids at college. And he is insisting that real men smoke. So I like that they put
1: it in. See, they put this in, but other things, no. Like a couple lines, like, I wish you wouldn't do that or whatever would have been helpful. Because here it looks like he picked up smoking and they're cool with it, I think. Because he's smoking in their presence, in their house. It was just kind of rude.
0: I don't know. I think before the advent of the anti-smoking, people just pretty much smoked everywhere. You've seen Mad Men. Everybody's smoking (laughs) at their desks. We used to make ashtrays for our mothers in our third grade art class for Mother's Day.
1: (laughs) It's true. But they were so fun to make because you got to put the little dents in the side. (laughs) I'm just saying,
0: (laughs) you're acting like smoking has always been this
1: dirty little habit. Oh, maybe I just wanted to be sweet and pure here. Although (laughs) the real smell of their house was probably, smoke was probably an improvement, I suppose.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't know. It probably smelled like Hannah's
1: apple pie. Oh, is that what you think? What about all the animals outside in the open windows? Where's that smell going?
0: That's organic.
1: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I'd like to bottle some of my air when the wind is out of the north, across the cow pastures. I also like the smell of skunk,
0: so I don't know. Oh my gosh, so
1: do I. Thank you. I always thought it smelled like um, real lemon, like the stuff, the one word in a bottle. You know, fake lemon, real lemon.
0: (laughs) Oh, I had a scratch and sniff Walt Disney book as a small child. And it was all full of like they had some machine that was stuck on making stanky smells and it was going through the town and Mickey and friends had to run around and fix it or something. And so all the scratch and sniff were stinky things.
1: Okay, that's funny. That's like being boozled for the 70s. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it was like tar and black pepper and gasoline and I don't know, skunk. And so I always really liked those smells after that. (laughs) That's funny. So Joe and Lori are talking and Joe basically says, I'm hurt. And I can't let anyone see. And of course, Lori says, you never let people see your soft side. Implied is the words, except me. I, myself, he says, lounging, have no grand plans. I think they're at his house, by the way. Lori's done with college. I guess he, maybe a three-year program, I guess. Anyway, I'm going to take a vacation. So, you know, tone deaf, tone deaf, because Joe says, well, aren't you fortunate? Very grim. It's very grim. (laughs) And I'm so delighted there was an interruption.
1: When Beth comes in, she does not look joyous at all. She looks scared. Like, terrified. Like, you guys, it's happening. Meg.
0: (laughs) I think that's how my husband and I got engaged, actually. (laughs) Because you were terrified? Because of something he said. Okay, my sister was having a baby. And my sister was friends with my husband before I ever met him. It was the middle of the night and we got the phone call that it was time, just like Beth, you know, although it was on the phone. So we get up and rush down there and it was the middle of the night. And so the guard's like, I'm sorry, only family can come in at this time of night. And my husband screamed, it's our sister! It's our sister! And he was so (laughs) freaking out that the guard's like, go right in. And I'm thinking, it's not your sister. (laughs) Huh. And then, my husband was so moved by the whole experience that he ditched his grand plans for our proposal and just proposed to me in the living room the next day.
1: Aww. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so sweet. I've never heard this story. What were his grand plans? Do you know?
0: <laughs> I, I don't know. He, he is still, to this day, sort of embarrassed that he just, we were watching TV and then he asked me to marry him. And he's like, that is not a good story. He's really mad about it. And I thought, you know, the real story is so much more delightful.
1: I think so. That's a great story. But I mean, it wasn't the day of the big proposals, though, the early 90s. So mine was just I lived in Pittsburgh. He lived in Chicago. I had to be in Milwaukee for business. So he drove up. <laughs> Aw. Yeah. nice. He was in a hotel. Marmy and Hannah help Meg and all of us learn why it's called labor and not a pleasant day in bed at the (laughs) (laughs) Brookhouse. Once again, I'm so grateful I escaped all of this. It really does not
0: look fun. Yikes. Uh, I always wonder what the dads are thinking. I mean, I hope John Brooke went over to the Lawrences or something. I hope he's not hearing his wife in this much pain. On second thought, though, John
1: has been on the battlefield
0: as has Marmee, more importantly, this particular battlefield, four separate times.
1: In one regard, for like, female bonding and everything, it's a lovely scene. It's prettily lit with candles, and poor Meg is moaning on the bed in so much pain, and Marmee is just being encouraging, and Hannah's being helpful. I mean, it's really pretty in that aspect, so yay. But yeah, she's in a lot of pain. I thought it was very realistic, actually.
0: Oh my goodness. Well... Poor Meg. Poor Meg.
1: I did love the last shot here because it's dark inside when she's in labor. And then the next thing we see is, you know, kind of a close up of some flowers in the garden and the sun is up. And in the background, she's screaming, giving birth, I guess, is what we're supposed to get from that. It's like the final scream.
0: Oh, yeah. And it kind of morphs into the music. I noticed that It was kind of clever.
1: So now everything is coming up rainbows and roses when Lori calls on the Brooke family and the whole clan gets to surprise him.
0: I love their faces. Again,
1: everyone and their secret
0: smile at the little surprise they have for Lori. I love they can't wait for the joy that's going to be on his face they're like so excited i love that they've done that several times and i think that is so realistic and good you're just like i don't what is it about the good part of humanity that you're like so excited for this little treat you're going to give someone so he has his eyes closed he's sitting at the table and they present him with quote the baby and what is it it's twins by jupiter he says a phrase by the way i should really bring back i tell you (laughs)
1: you should by jupiter just don't confuse it with another planet (laughs) by uranus
0: (laughs) that's the one i was thinking of uranus (laughs) either way not good (laughs) okay so then amy says that there's a boy and a girl and she says i put blue on one and pink on the other french fashion and i see why the director hedged here not wanting the emails from historians actually in america that didn't solidify until world war ii
1: pink was marketed for boys for a very long time yes pink they thought it was a stronger color than blue and that blue was very dainty
0: yeah it went back and forth honestly for a long time but in the book louisa may alcott is very clear about who gets what ribbon pink on the girl Blue on the boy. But this is the fact checker getting nervous about feedback. And we have been there, sister.
1: <laughs> we maybe, have been there. Maybe very recently.
0: <laughs> anyway, they this is not included. Not even this. They named the boy John after his papa. And they named the girl Margaret after her mama. <laughs> so in the Brooke family, there are two Johns. And two Margarets. (laughs) (laughs) So they started calling the little girl Daisy, which is a nickname for Margaret. And then the little boy is called Demi-John, which like half John, little John. Mm -hmm. And that was actually given to him by Lori. So they are Daisy
1: and Demi, although we never hear their names in this movie. Which is too bad because those are absolutely adorable. A couple lines for that would have been nice while well, he's got that basket of babies in front of him. <laughs> for some reason, in this scene, I was just struck that John Howard King, who plays Lori, should play in something the older brother of Lucas Jade Zuman, who plays Gilbert Blythe and Anne with an E. Like, <laughs> The dark hair. I think hair. one
0: of the listeners said the same thing.
1: Oh, did they? I mm-hmm. didn't see. That. that was a fresh thought. I swear. Or if it wasn't a fresh thought, I apologize that I stole it. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't. Re- I don't remember seeing it. But yeah, they look so much, so much alike for some reason in that particular scene. I'd like to see that movie because they're both adorable. So while all this baby basketing is going on in the other room, Marmy and Meg are having their first meeting of the March Moms Club. This is another
0: bit of surprising realism. Um, Marmy is helping Meg clean up after the birth. And do you suppose they just have to throw that mattress away now?
1: Well, based on a later scene, I would say... No, they don't. (laughs) Well, maybe, okay, so maybe in these days of
0: straw ticks, you just take all the straw out and throw that away. Well, it's such a good torch passing, this conversation between mother and daughter, and I wouldn't know, and of course I never will, as I only have one son, but it seems like a circle is maybe completed watching your own daughter become a mother. That's the look I'm getting on Marmy's face. And when Meg says, thank you, Marmy, I felt the tears come, but I was able to beat them back this time.
1: Yeah, me too. Because I sat there as a mom of a daughter. I'm like, I wonder if we'll have a conversation like that, because I don't recall having a conversation like that with my mom. But I know my mom had twilight sleep. And so our birth experiences were entirely different. Right. <laughs> but Marmy was there during Meg's labor and she's, you know, giving her these words. And Meg's like, I'm going to take those words and give them to my own daughter. Hmm. It's It was really pretty. It was really pretty. And yeah, I loved it. Later that evening, Beth shows her new evening tradition involving Lori to Joe, who was curious about that. and. Beth's words. So she ends up thinking that Beth is in
0: love with Lori. And I can see why Joe misunderstands. Beth makes a special point of being at the window and knows when Lori's about to come. And he sees her at the window and salutes her. And even I, if I didn't know the story, would think, oh, oh, ho, something's going on. And once Joe gets that idea in her mind, she just adds on and builds a whole castle in the air in that direction. And um, I can see it. That's all.
1: Oh, definitely. Because Beth is looking out the window and she's so happy. And she's looking at Laurie and she's saying he looks so strong and well and happy. And it does sound like she's got feelings for him. I it, Easy to see. Mm-hmm. Easy mm-hmm. to see. In the next scene, Amy is setting off on her grand adventure.
0: She's gone for at least a year. And it takes two weeks at this point to get across the ocean on a steamer. So fourteen days there, fourteen days back. That takes up a twelfth of your time. So you you're now down to eleven months in your <laughs> Bummer.
1: In the book though, Amy and Lori in this particular scene have a very tender moment. I think it would have played so well for the show if they had just done this one little thing in the book. Amy asked Laurie to watch over her family and look after them. And he says he will and that he would come and visit her in Europe if she needed him. It was very sweet. And just that little couple extra lines in the scene would have done so much a couple scenes from now. Yeah. Do you agree?
0: Yeah. um, There has been a significant lack of
1: foundation building. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And, you know, it's always been curious to me um, why Louisa May Alcott put Amy taking this trip when in real life, Louisa had gone to Europe as a lady's companion. It wasn't a very great trip, except for a little side sizzle with a Polish man. Um, But
0: Well, I think it was just to show that the rich relations always favored Amy.
1: Yeah. Okay. I can see that.
0: And it was something to take away from Joe. That was pretty clearly something
1: that she wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Speaking of Lori, in the next scene, he gives it yet one more shot with Joe. And she shoots him down again. So the
0: barrier pillow, the famous barrier pillow from upstairs is now downstairs and it has gone up firmly like between them. I like that they focused on that. (laughs) And I also love when Joe goes, where are you off to floating on that cloud of cologne and pomade? (laughs) I was like, "Okay, that's hilarious. At least I've escaped the cloud of Axe body spray (laughs) or have i because i still have to roll down the windows my friends for a much less pleasant experience but um yeah i see that the whole middle school cloud of cologne
1: is eternal is that (laughs) your your son's friends don't partake but the stank is again organic (laughs) (laughs) No, I understand. Actually, here's the difference having two kids. Um, My older son did go through the axe phase and it grossed out my younger son so much for the same reason it grosses us out that when it came time for him to smell good, he insisted on the upgrade cologne. (laughs) So my younger son does not do axe, but he's more expensive.
0: Oh my goodness. I am just traveling with some kind of circus of funk. It is just... I'm going to have to sell my car. At the end of this. <laughs> so Laurie says some stuff that doesn't make him appear very nice in my eyes. He's talking about a girl named Eugenia Randall, a girl he evidently spent time sending flowers to once a day for an entire school year. Eugenia Randall is a delicious romp, he says, and a fine flirt. And I'm not sure how I like him disparaging his ex flame here. I don't like that. It's not very gentlemanly. I know this is technically his sister he's talking to. So I guess it's all safe in the house or whatever. But Joe immediately says Marmee doesn't approve of that sort of girl. So the whole culture is shaming old Eugenia Randall, who, by the way, is engaged. So stick my tongue out to all of you. (laughs) She played the game. She won the end if we're judging by that. But Lori says Marmee didn't raise that type of girl. What I really like are sensible, straightforward girls. And he leans in as if to give her a kiss. And Joe's saved by Marmy's call. Joe, come here. I want you. Lori, this won't do, says Joe. And I am here to tell you, Lori, that is clear. It is clear. Absorb this. Let it sink <laughs> in. She would rather turn mattresses than kiss you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? I did not like this version of Lori in this scene at all. He's like such a player. Now, I don't know if maybe he was laying it on heavy to, I don't even know what, to impress her, to tease her. I'm not sure. Too much flirty, too much everything. Over the top. Too much. Five o'clock shadow. Did you happen to notice that? Well, he's a man. I know. I know. I think, but... um, the character, that's like one of the ways they're aging him. They're changing his hair, his part, mm-hmm. and they're letting his five o'clock shadow grow in. And that's it.
0: <laughs> well, that's OK. That's OK. I mean, I would rather them do that than try to play off a
1: 22-year-old person as a 12-year-old. Oh, thank you very much. Joe knows what she wants. She knows what Beth wants. And she tries to get Marmy on board with a vague plan to achieve both.
0: I want to go away, Marmy, says Joe. And Joe is trying to spin this as a desire to be a nurse. Now, that is a respectable thing far away, likely the only thing that is respectable and far away, you know, but Marmy sees through it. I have to say this modern no-nonsense type of Marmee is really getting to me, what do you really need Joe? Forgive me if I'm being disrespectful, but I don't think the fate of the sick and suffering is your principal concern. Because <laughs> Marmy has been around the block and <laughs> she knows her daughters very well. And so Joe just breaks out with the truth. I need to see things. I need to be things. I need to get away from Lori. And this actually catches Marmy's attention. If you see her look right here. And surprise, surprise, turns out Marmy. Marmee had not only known about Lori and his love, which he has made completely obvious, but she had been worried about them and the combination of them together for some time. They're too much alike, for one, and marriage takes infinite patience and forbearance as well as love. Wise words from the trenches of patience and forbearance. Marmee is living a whole life she hadn't signed up for. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So Joe has seen the gold medalist in forbearance (laughs) in operation. Joe reassures her, you know, there's no chance, no chance of me falling in love with Lori, not with anyone as far as I'm concerned. But Beth, on the other hand, now she passes the Beth delusion on to Marmee. Already, of course, in the book, she's pushed Meg on Lori. And now Beth, (laughs) keep going. Third time's (laughs) the charm. One of these times you're going to get the right sister, but it will break my heart says Joe cleverly, if I stand in the way of what might be the better thing. You got her, Joe. She's in with your scheme. She's going to write a letter.
1: <laughs> this is that mattress scene, by the way. Because uh, when they're flipping the mattress, you can see how uh, used it is. <laughs> so that's, that's what I was thinking, like, oh, it looks a little grungy, but all right. Okay, I, I'm totally getting off what you were saying, but in this particular scene, I was distracted by one thing This one I do remember a listener commenting on, Marmee's hair. It's been casual this whole show, but this particular scene, it's crazy messy. I mean, it's in her face and it was really distracting to me. And I'm like, yeah, would her hair be really like that? That's too much, too much down, too much not even caring. It was totally distracting to me.
0: I think she's been filling a straw tick. That's what I think. That's probably more realistic than usual, actually. That's like, you know, you put your hair up in a pineapple or whatever, and then go out and do some stuff. After a while, little pieces come out. And if you've been rooting around in the hay bale.
1: I understand that. And I agree. But I'm just saying, her messy hair pulled me out. (laughs) And you know what? The average person watching this would think they're just flipping the mattress like we do. There's no cleaning. There's no fluffing. There's nothing. Flip. Done. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, I don't know. Um, A whole room full of cosmetic, cosmeticians, which is not a word, (laughs) 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 which is, I'm like, huh? I don't know where I was going with that. A whole, (laughs) a whole room full of uh, hair and makeup. People have made that decision for them.
1: So a whole bunch of people cast a 21 year old as a 12 year old. True. True. So I guess uh, Joe's conversation with Marmy was successful. In the next scene, Lori and Joe pack her up in the garret. Joe is going on her own life adventure in the big city.
0: Lori is a real negative Nelly here, isn't he? He won't like New York. You're just going as a governess. <laughs> He's trying to bring her down in a way that Joe didn't even bring Amy down. Think how easily Joe could have been a pill and spoiled Amy's big adventure. And she didn't do it. She kept it on side. She didn't let Amy understand the depth of her despair. She didn't want Amy to be the one to go, but she was the bigger person. And I think Laurie is really failing here.
1: That's interesting, because now that you say that, I can see it, but that's not how I read it in the scene. How I interpreted it was more like a brother and sister jabbing because she's not buying it she's still smiling and i actually thought this was really good because it sets up having interpreted it as a brother and a sister relationship the future of the storyline for the two of them
0: well let me just say in the book it does get a little darker and more explicit Lori says at this point to her in the book it won't do a bit of good joe my eye is on you so mind what you do up there or i'll come and bring you home
1: yeah, that's horrible. I'm glad they left it out.
0: <laughs> so I am I guess having read the book, I am interpreting his behavior as sulking um, at the delay in her return of his affections.
1: OK, so we're both right. I <laughs> love that. You know, I never understood why Louisa May Alcott had Joe go to New York and not Boston when Boston was the city that she knew best.
0: Because New York is the big other. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere and you might as well aim (laughs) high. And it's the best place you can go for that in the country since Europe is out of the question. I mean, you might know people in Boston. That's not going to be the same.
1: That's true. Okay, now I have to read it all over again and not question it like I do every single time it comes up in this story. In the next scene, through letters and postcards to Marmy, we see the places and the people in Joe's new life, including one man in particular, as well as. Amy's travel logs.
0: Well, so Joe is on the streetcar with yet another ferociously unfortunate hat. <laughs> I cannot express how much I hate this hat. Okay, this is the little straw one? No, this is some kind of, it looks like an old, um, what are they, ice cream scooper hat that you might wear in a diner in the 50s, only it's made of like mustard colored silk with a pickle-colored
1: embroidery, it is not good. Okay, I did not notice that hat. But later on in her New York Times, she's wearing a hat that I really liked. So I'm wondering if you're saying her ugly hat is the one that I really liked. I would really doubt it. Okay. Nobody right. is going <laughs> to like
0: this hat. Uh, so independence has its charms. Yes, its challenges include... Fastening her own corset. There's a little bit of comedy for you. She's turning around and around and around trying to get it. <laughs> I guess I hadn't thought about that. You don't have a lady's maid or a sister, or in fact, anyone in the house who can see you in your underwear. You are in a pickle. Um, also, there's a scene that I can't stand. She's sitting there. She smelled the foot of her hose and then ewed and then put them on anyway. And I had to lay on the floor, but only in my mind. <laughs>
1: I thought that was so realistic because college age Susan, which Joe is right now, would probably have done the same thing. It's like, oh, how bad is this? I have to wear it. But, ooh, yeah, I totally would have done the same thing. (laughs) Sorry. Is that too much information? I am laying on the floor again in my own mind. (laughs) All right. But that whole dressing herself, the corset thing, I totally related to that, too, because I have dresses with zippers in the back. What was I thinking? I need somebody to do the zipper. So if I'm getting dressed alone, which I usually am, I can't get the zipper. So... (laughs) Joe has come to live here as the governess
0: to the two little girls of the owner of this boarding house, a Mrs. Kirk. Um, Mrs. Kirk is a friend of her mother's, I think from the days of um, soldier supplying. I think they worked together, perhaps in different cities for the same purpose. And that's how they became acquainted. So um, Mrs. Kirk is the one that Marmy wrote to to get her this gig in the first place. So she's downstairs at the boarding house at the dining table, and it's seems to be men on one end um and ladies and children on the other end it's a tower of babel there there's scandinavian this and french that and it's a melting pot which is good because it's a little microcosm of new york city and we get our first glimpse of the new gabriel Byrne, mr, <laughs> mr. bear and I'm like, hmm, uh, mm, those are some mighty big shoes to fill, Mark Stanley, um, aka for those of you who watch Game of Thrones, I do not, so I don't know a thing about his character. But evidently, this actor also plays Jon Snow's friend, Gren from Game of Thrones, um, only till season four. So evidently, something happened to him. And he's also
1: a singer. I found a YouTube video. It's a nice song. It's bouncy. I'll put it on the show notes. He's British. There's a lot of British people. I feel it necessary to point out the people that are faking American accents and the ones that really have it. He's not faking an American accent.
0: (laughs) No, he would be faking a German accent. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Well, um, this guy fits Louisa May Alcott's description a Professor Bear far better than Gabriel Byrne ever did, i.e. stout. With messy brown hair and a bushy beard, not a handsome feature in his face, a good nose, good teeth, and a splendid big voice. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Side note, there are so many dishes to wash after each meal at this boarding house, I hate to think. And there have to be at least two scullery maids that do nothing but that from morning till night.
1: Yeah. But it's a very popular boarding house. It must make a, you know, nice income for Mrs. Kirk.
0: I hope it's all worth it. (laughs) Marmee is reading Joe's letters to Father and Beth, who are loving every bit of it. And to Lori, who is crumpled up and grumpy
1: by the fireplace. Joe, in one of these letters, says that Professor Bear is handsome because, quote, poverty always enriches those that rise above it. So he's handsome because he's poor. You know, Laurie is not poor.
0: (laughs) Laurie hates the air that Professor Bear is breathing. Poor Laurie, man. He's having a grumpy time. I think it's funny, though, that like he's one of the last children at home.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I also think it's kind of neat that he is still going over there, even though nobody's home but Beth, really. I mean, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's his family. He had to find a family his grandfather wasn't very nurturing. It's better over at the marches. Everything's better at the marches.
0: Well, so back to the boarding house, Mr. Bear is arranging his books and singing to himself, Canst du das Land, which is a um, poem set to music, but a poem by Goethe, uh, very German, of course. And um, Joe, passing by, is drawn to look at him through the open doorway. Um, You know, just the sound of his voice. A little servant girl, and I do mean little like seven or eight is coming up and i can't tell in the show what it is in the book it's a heavy basket of coal which doesn't look like a heavy basket of coal but anyway mr bear comes out in both medias and relieves her of it and um then he tells joe that he hates to see a little child having to earn its bread and it pains me too says joe with a secret
1: thunderbolt into her heart So they're bonding over their disdain for child labor. There you go. (laughs) It takes, you know, you never know.
0: Um, Amy's postcard, we see her buying a postcard, and Amy's is sort of breezy, just like any postcard you'd send, really, from where you're on vacation, uh, where I went, who I saw... I loaded up on cheap ribbon. You guys, I can't believe how cheap stuff is here. Like, I like the fact, speaking of ribbon, that Marmy keeps Amy's postcards on a ribbon in the living room. Um, that's how we used to, before my child became too cool, this is how we used to do our summer bucket list. We used to clip little cards on a ribbon on the mantel.
1: I love that. I thought that was so cute. We had a list, but it was just a list on a refrigerator and we crossed things <laughs> off. You did it so much more cool. Now it just involves the skate park. (laughs) I also think it's interesting to contrast Joe's really long, detailed letters about, you know, everything that she's seeing and the people she's meeting with these little snippets, these little postcard one-liners from Amy you know, got in a handsome cab. Aunt Carol made us leave. Because the driver had been drinking beer. (laughs)
0: Uh, Okay, so back at the boarding house, all, I guess I'd say all heck is breaking loose in preschool land. (laughs) It's (laughs) not hell, but um, it is an activated situation. Mr. Bear's nephews, Franz and Emil, who actually we hear their name, but we don't get Daisy and Demi. I I don't know. Anyway, his nephews are the lion and tiger and Minnie's the keeper and Kitty is riding The elephant, aka Mr. Bear. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool to see dudes making abject fools of themselves with the kids like this, the young relatives, um, endearing. Chris Graham used to be this guy with all the nephews until everyone grew up. You know, the lions and tigers always outgrow it, much to my sadness. But um, Joe's just like me here when I used to see that, like angels are singing, like he's a keeper,
1: you know? like (laughs) Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, no, totally. And then after you're married, when they like got the kids ready for bed because you were tired, I don't know. <laughs> In My house, it was, it was like a big deal. It's like, oh, thank you so much. That's really something. In the next scene, Joe sets off and gets herself a new steady writing gig at the Weekly Volcano. So another paper, like the Spread Eagle back home, um, it's
0: sort of more no-nonsense in this office. In the book, the editor here was mostly impressed, or relieved, is probably more like it, at the professionalism of Joe's submissions. Not the content necessarily, at least this is why he's treating her um, as a professional. He's treating her like any other writer that comes in because she has put her things on single side only on the paper. It is on numbered pages. It is spaced properly. It is written clearly. It is not tied with ribbons. She knows the ropes, and so he's going to treat her like any other writer. Now that is a measure of equality that I really appreciate. Um so he doesn't have time for any nonsense. Also, he's got a lot of space to fill if his paper comes out so frequently. So he just goes through her stuff. 20, 20, 20, 10. He says, "Whoa, 10. Stories of Sister Leah love don't appeal." Joe tries to make a stand for just about half a second, but honestly, his position is take it or leave it. He does not care. However, she just made $1,200, uh, modern money speaking, and now has a contract for $350 a month. If she can write fast and get him more stories like the ones he paid $20 for, that's fine. I'll put you in every other week. There you go. Yeah. So she's doing okay, since especially since the writing is her side gig. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And she... Presented him, he bought everything that she had, even if he only gave her a cut rate on the sister story, which I think is funny because, you know, Louisa May Alcott didn't like to write little women. That wasn't her thing. Right. But she did it anyway. And that was her big, her big money maker. But I'm actually kind of surprised he even paid for it if he didn't want it. Oh.
0: I wonder where he's going to put it. If it's not, maybe he has a uh, side project or something.
1: Or a w- there's a women's column that doesn't sell a lot of ads nearby. Oh, okay, maybe or something. He's uh, he's got a place for it. It's just not he can't put it on the front. Right. Okay, this is the hat that I really like. For the first time in the show, I loved her outfit. It was so professional looking. It was the blue jacket with a white collar, and I love this cute little straw hat, and I I have to wonder if it's that same one that you didn't like when she was on the bus, because it is shaped like An ice cream, an ice cream vendor's hat. But Hmm. I thought it was adorable. That'll be solved after recording. (laughs) Back at the boarding house, Professor Bear and Joe read to children in German and in English. And he invites her to a philosophy date.
0: They are reading Hans Christian Andersen's story called The Angel about a little child who has died, and he and the angel are flying around picking flowers to plant in heaven. It is not super uplifting.
1: No, I thought it was so weird to be reading this as a bedtime story because were the kids going to then kneel down and say, now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's like kids die. That's what they're talking about. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I I just don't know.
1: That is really bad dream fodder right there.
0: Well, uh, fair warning, pick your flowers out now, evidently. Um, I am wondering, though, if they shifted to this story because of Beth. I wonder, because in the book, they were instead reading Hans Christian Andersen's The Constant Tin Soldier, which is even darker, if that's possible, about forbidden love between a tin soldier and a paper doll ballerina there's stalking there's burning death together at last Uh, so we've mentioned before in the history chicks uh, i think it was the red riding hood podcast fairy tales can be pretty dark things (laughs) <laughs> so, anyway, one or the other sort of dire story is being told in two languages to these children right before bedtime. All right. And so they go off. Sweet dreams. Hope that goes well. And so the adults are left, and the professor comes in and asks, in his delightful accent, of course, I'm not German, so I don't know how well this goes, but he says, Do you have any fondness for philosophy? <laughs> Which is actually pretty cute. And so, yes, she's Kant. She disagrees that the world conforms to people. She thinks people conform to the world, which is more than many ladies would have ready. Um, more than I would have had ready. And so when he moves into Hegel, she's clearly faking it. We can all tell. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> she doesn't know a thing about Hegel. That was the extent of it right there. Well, he wants to take her to a debate sounds like fun. Well, she's in though. So it does sound like fun. Whatever you like is fun to you. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. she is in. We're good. That's a good first date at the end.
1: When he walked into the room at the beginning of that scene, he saw her writing. She was writing at the table and he said, oh, you're writing home. And she says, no, I'm just writing. It was nice that they put that in there Mm -hmm. because, you know, again, it's Joe writing isn't like anybody else writing. It's her business. It's her job. You know, there's no way he would even assume that. Right. So. Because she's a governess. That's her job. Exactly. So they have that date. It's date night. And Joe has done a little homework for it. She went to the library and read up special
0: on Hegel, which from his perspective is immensely gratifying. Um, And I have to say, as someone who puts things out there. Um, To know that people care enough to go in deeper by themselves on a subject that you introduce them to, that is amazing. That is a foundation of a real relationship right there. And so good. That's good. Especially since I think Hegel is widely considered to be the most difficult philosopher (laughs) to understand in the entirety of philosophy, which is saying something. So Hegel is heavy going. And I will send you a, mm, I would say Hegel for dummies, but it's like Hegel for the Mensa set who is interested. It is really, there's no way
1: (laughs) to make it easier. I'm laughing. I'm like, okay, I know (laughs) it's admired to do all this self-study on your own, but I'm not going to do it.
0: Yeah, I just thought, we'll we'll make it available for the two of you who want to go further.
1: <laughs> and don't just want to make Kant puns, you know. Oh. We con bond over Kant. <laughs>
0: Correct.
1: I, I thought she was so cute in both both of these scenes. At the end where she's all giggly. Yes, I'll go on this date with you. And when she comes out of the front door, all excited about having done her research and having expanded her mind, you could see there's like a high for her there. And I think, you know, on an intellectual level, that stirs Professor Bear a great yeah. deal. Yeah. He's like, oh my gosh, this is hot. Someone I could talk to. Oh my, oh my, my. <laughs>
0: Never discount the power of your mind.
1: That's right. And they walk off and she's, it's like friend giggling. She doesn't have like a, it's charming in its um, awkwardness, I guess, her laugh. Mm -hmm. I've heard that laugh with Lori. So it was nice. They had her do it with Professor Bear when they're just setting off on this unusual first date. (laughs) So while Joe is in dark, snowy New York City, Amy is reading her stories in Europe And Beth is sleeping. It's a sunny situation.
0: And Amy's there reading The Daily Volcano and talking about how Joe's work has prepared her for Europe. The vampire bridesmaid got her through the catacombs and she read The Gondolier's Ransom within sight of real gondoliers in Venice. So basically, Amy is living her life in Joe's imaginary world right now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: And the backdrop of Amy's, you know, blah, blah, blah about blue dye for her shoes. I guess nobody dyes their shoes here. Everybody just buys new shoes because that's how it is. Blah, 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 blah. Marmy is reading that against the reality of Beth's
1: obvious weakness. It's sobering. It is. Beth is just laying on the sofa next to Marmy, who's reading this letter, and she's just out, you know. You can tell that she spends a great deal of her time asleep because she can't. She's not strong enough to make it through the day. That's just the first of many times when I think you know where Amy is doing one thing, and reality back home is entirely different.
0: Yeah, the contrast is um, really something else. You have two healthy, happy daughters having grand adventures, and really, if you include Meg, is having a domestic grand adventure. Um, she's probably just as tired as Beth, frankly. <laughs> with, with Twin toddlers. Twins. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. I mean, that's like all part of it. But um, yeah, the contrast is just really something, I think.
1: Professor Bear and Joe have a disagreement about the quality of reading material in the boarding house, and then they make up. Well, Joe and all the kids of the household
0: are painting eggs. I don't know if it's Easter or if it's just a thing. I'm not sure, but she has put newspapers all over the dining room table and they're finishing up because the maids are getting ready to come in and um, lay the table. And so, you know, Professor Bear comes in and that little shy sideways look as he's starting to help her clean up when he says, my nephews enjoy their handicrafts with you slays Joe dead. (laughs) It is... (laughs) So good and cute. I, man. Well, she reveals that she likes teaching boys better. That'll come up later. Then girls, don't tell Mrs. Kirk. Boys are easier. Um, But then the paper that they are picking up under all the, the paint kind of catches... Mr. Bear's eye and makes him feel very upset. He says it would be better that the children play with gunpowder than be exposed to things like this. And he shows a pretty lurid drawing on the front page and he starts throwing that stuff in the fire um, to dispose of it, which he probably would have anyway, because that's what one did with Papers, much to the historian's dismay, with regard to letters, etc. But you wouldn't just throw them in the trash can; you just throw them in the fire. So I don't know if he's angry and throwing them in the fire,
1: or just yeah, I got angry. I I got he was disgusted by the quality. the stories and the type of stories that were sitting around for children to read. Okay. They were just reading about a dying kid flying around with an angel.
0: (laughs) That's an angel. And that's Hans Christian Andersen. That's wholesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I don't know where the line is because he says, I have no patience with those who create such bad trash. I will say in the book, there's a line here where Joe quote excited the suspicions of public librarians by asking for books on porn. Poison. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, there's a whole scenario where Joe is ruining her mind, uh, investigating weaponry and reading stories about criminals and combing the police blotter in the newspapers about arrests and nefariousness and this. And she's filling her mind with the, I guess, bad trash she needs to write her stories. So there is an implication that joe's the one being corrupted in the book that is missing from this
1: adaptation so yeah i'm glad they left that out (laughs) but joe jumps
0: right in and defends her choices um book joe does hold it in for a while but this joe is not even playing you know movie joe says all this money i'm earning goes to the good of someone i love and reveals that beth is not strong and All this volcano money is going to be spent on a trip to the ocean for this beloved sister. So does that still make me bad trash? You know, what can he say? What? I mean, he has put his foot in it. That's like when you think you're in different company and you say a thing and you realize, oh, no.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) And I like this seed because once again, it gave a chance to um, take writing as is it a job and a career, a vocation Or is it an art? And he clearly saw it as an art, like a lot of people do, like Father did. Whereas Joe and Louisa May Alcott were like, no, I have to put pen to paper, not for some inner working glory. I do it for money. That's why I do it. The end. Uh, They're making that point perfectly clear in this whole adaptation, and I really appreciate it. So Joe is in her room and Professor Bear comes along to offer an apology. He says he doesn't have the proper words, but he does have the complete works of Shakespeare, which he gives her.
0: Well, he does have the words for a lecture, sort of. Shakespeare, he says, created entertaining spectacles for the people, but also works of such beauty that the world is still sustained by them and one need not exclude the other so that seems to be a lecture to me inexplicably joe says you know so much more than i do which surely joe's read shakespeare
1: yeah that surprised me too yeah
0: anyway he does come back with something that redeems him no you know don't get me wrong book professor bear was equally paternalistic so this is just period appropriate but um he says that just makes me learned not wise this is where he comes back he says i'm wiser now yes
1: hot 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 (laughs) good
0: good good good. um so she tells him that she's going she just got another check she has enough money to go to the sea so she's out and he says Nothing more then, but you'll return, because he can't say more. They're compressed by their Victorian propriety. Yes, I will return to New York, she says.
1: York. Say. I, I know. But they say so much more. I love this guy's eyes. They're like this clear brown. It's just beautiful. I would have fallen into them, too. And I don't like facial hair. So there. <laughs> so facial hair, Bear. Professor Bear sends Joe... <laughs> he sends joe off for a month-long trip back to concord so she can fulfill her promise to take beth to the shore
0: so all he says really is god speed you on your journey miss march and he clasps her gloved hands and as she pulls away um she notices and it took me a minute honestly i was in the sun and i was on my phone so i had to take a screenshot and come back at it inside it's just flowers is what it is i thought this whole time is it a what is it a rosary a origami swan. I could not tell what it was. And I was trying to make some big production number out of it. And it's in fact, just some blue
1: flowers. So I believe they were delphiniums, but I could be mistaken. Maybe they were forget-me-nots. It was hard to tell. They were kind of crushed together.
0: I would like the thought that they're forget-me-nots because their very name, forget-me-nots.
1: Exactly. And this is the era of talking with flowers.
0: Evidently. And I just looked this up. I didn't have this percolating in my head. So don't be that impressed. Evidently, if they are delphiniums, they symbolize an open heart and an ardent attachment.
1: Ooh. So functionally, either flower will work for my purposes. Yes. It's like Joe had never left Orchard House when she and Lori have the most awkward, painful, but necessary conversation that ends with an angry and very hurt tone.
0: I was thinking at the opening of this scene that it must be a nice break for Joe to just be outside even in a place where no one cares if your hair is blowing every old place and you can wear whatever your sweatpants are (laughs) in this, you know, your old dress or whatever. And they're just um, she's really in a comfortable place. Well, still with her hair down, still in her sweatpants. She's with Lori, and Lori looks just sick, just sick. He has something on his mind, and he is not going to let this casual mood continue. Joe, we are going to have this out. We're going to have this out right now. I love you. I've been trying to show you, and now I want you to hear me, and I want you to give me an answer. I think she's been giving him a lot of answers, but whatever.
1: Yeah, she gave him
0: an answer, but all right. Over and over. Anyway, she says, I don't want you to be unhappy. That's why I went away. Seems like that's an answer. I, you know, could be just me. Lori says, I have spent the whole time you've been away trying to make myself into someone good enough for you to love. Now that is actually very sad. That is. That actually, for some reason, got me. Because he's been thinking this whole time that if he could only change himself, It it would work something's just not working and it's got to be him because joe's perfect, you know in his mind Yeah, or whatever and she says she really truly tried to love him in the way that you know, she he's been wanting she tried and he Asks her very seriously. You really and truly tried and something about her answer Strikes him and he realizes I mean, what is it going to take? I guess this he finally realizes that it is not going to happen he just breaks actually he bends he bends in half and cries and loudly he sobs and it's so sad and so real and I genuinely feel his sadness right here and I did get a little teary it's it is a heartbreak that first time that happens to you
1: Yeah, especially for somebody like Laurie, who's he had so much confidence with women. You know, he was a very successful flirt, I guess, is the best way to put it. When he's talking about Eugenia Randall, you know, he's very confident. And it's just ironic and sad. to The one
0: that matters is the only one that doesn't work. All these Eugenia Randall's are dropping like dominoes and he doesn't care. But it's the one that he cares about that is slipping away. And it's just it hit him all at once. And then, of course, they slip. Right into classic Lori Joe bickering, which is proof that both Marmy. And the universal right. <laughs> None of the doors in their future house would have any hinges left from all the slamming. There would be that is not gonna work. Um, so that's just a little example to us, the audience. Like, oh yeah, you forgot how this was, right? This is how it is. So then he gets all jealous about Professor Bear. The idea of Professor Bear, who he's never met, who Joe's only been out with once. <laughs> uh, so he's already going on that train. You grew out your hair, she says. For no apparent reason and he kind of sickly says i thought that you would like it that's one of the ways that he was changing himself to meet her ideal i'll never love anyone but you he says of course you will and i will too you don't have a heart joe and she screams after him because he's taking off i wish i hadn't so there it is they have had it out they have had a heart-to-heart they have bickered
1: and now they're back to yelling at each other (laughs) establishing their new normal. Yeah, I'm always surprised by this scene. You know, Laurie proposing is it's in every adaptation, right? But it always surprises me. I, maybe the first time I didn't expect to see so much romancy stuff in the story, or maybe I really wanted, like, you know, everyone else, Joe to end up with Laurie. You know, right. and somehow make it work out, you know, opposite is to track and let's turn that fire into something beautiful, which Louisa May Alcott was like, heck no, they are never going to get married. Well, and
0: um, Louisa May Alcott wanted Joe to stay a literary spinster. She thought that is a perfectly acceptable end game for Joe and the publisher wouldn't let her do it. Mm-hmm. And so she just very Joe like, frankly, made what she called, quote, a funny match for Joe. To spite everyone like, oh, really, you want her to be married? Well, what about this then? Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of like uh, Professor Bear. So I guess the jokes on Louisa May Alcott, but she purposely did not marry Joe to Lori because in her mind, she wanted Joe to be single. And she was trying to explore that idea
1: and no one would let her. So. Yeah. Which is too bad because that's she was single. She never got married. There's so much from her real life in the story. It would have been a great opportunity for her to establish this literary spinsterhood as being socially acceptable. And you guys need to open your minds to it because it's super cool. You know, she would have loved to have had that opportunity with this book and she wasn't given it. Right. Lori and Mr. Lawrence, the elder, talk about love, life, heartbreak, and what Lori should do next in his life.
0: Well, Lori's pretty devastated. Um, We missed, because we've missed the entire Joe-Mr. Lawrence relationship, we've missed that Joe came back herself to tell Grandpa about what had just happened. Yes, she told Mr. Lawrence that she had rejected Lori's proposal of marriage and that he needed to be hyper alert for some kind of mood happening when Laurie came back. So grandpa was ready already. Um, so we didn't see that here. I don't know. Um, I'm bummed about that. We had so much time. What did we use it for? <laughs> anyway, um, here's what we see in this scene. We see that grandpa really does love him, really does understand what he's going through. He says there's one person who would go to the end of the earth with you. Me. I will go with you. I'll go with you away. Let's go abroad. I went through this at your age. I went through it again with your father, where he didn't handle it very well, by the way. Um, Thus the distance, but whatever. And so now he's rectifying his mistake. And then Laurie starts playing the piano. And Grandpa says the most hilarious thing to me. So dry. May I advise against the sonata pathetique until you're feeling more robust. <laughs> I loved that. It's like, please do not play sad songs on the radio. That's all it is, is that he was going to go in and wallow and listen to emo and just cry and this and that. And he's like, nah,
1: (laughs) you're saying it was a very sad piece of music.
0: (laughs) Well, I tell you, I will let you decide for yourself. I will play it because I happen to have it available to me from previous episodes of the History Chicks. So so (laughs) I, I will play 30 seconds of it now, right when we take a little break. And when we come back, we will cover the last half of the episode and wrap up the series for you.
1: We are back. Joe and Beth are on their peaceful beach vacation when Beth breaks the sweet, peaceful mood and reveals her whole sad secret and what it means.
0: So I'm wondering, given how we open with Joe and the ocean, if Joe needs the ocean and its peace more than Beth needs its air, actually, I think Joe is worn out with effort and stress and strain. I think she needs a chance to just be. And so look at Beth's face. Beth just loves the sight of Joe this way.
1: It's really beautiful. And it made me think there's not much running in this. Like Joe Book Joe ran more than this one does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was a lot more physical. Louisa May Alcott loved to run, but this Joe hasn't run a whole lot. So it was nice to see her running headlong into the water. Yes, must've been really cold. (laughs)
0: still she's wearing a lot of clothes
1: that's true (laughs) that's true that's true
0: so when she comes back and she's drying off we see the bloomers comically draped from a pole beth says you know don't you joe and of course joe thinks about laurie and answers that she does but then beth goes in an unexpected direction and goes on to say that she was feeling so bad that she went to see the doctor So that he could tell her she was being silly, like uh, overreacting, hypochondriacal. But in fact, he confirmed her suspicions and confirmed that Beth was dying. Although really, I don't believe we say that we're dying. And that kind of throws Joe for a loop. Like that is what is that? That is not at all where I was going with this conversation. What about Lori then? And Beth just explains it was, you know, seeing him. So strong and well and living life was all I cared about. And that's kind of borne out by the way she was looking at Joe. So strong and well and running into the ocean and enjoying herself. She was taking pleasure in that, um, in Joe also, the way she did with Lori. And Joe is so Guilty, I think. You bore it all alone, is all that Joe says. And she is thinking of, I mean, they were all marching around doing whatever they were doing and being grumpy and angry and like complaining about first world problems. And here's little Beth that had this giant weight that she was carrying this whole time all alone because she, and I quote, didn't want to be selfish.
1: So Beth really is the best sister. <laughs> <laughs> she, oh my goodness, isn't she? And speaking of the best, isn't Anne's Elwy okay in my mind? She is the best Beth ever. I loved her Beth, loved yeah. it.
0: Yes, I agree that she is one of the shining stars of this whole thing. So I hope I see more of her. Though of course I won't recognize her because she'll have her regular voice back. <laughs> and they'll pro- and sadly they'll probably cover up her freckles. Ah, I hope not. Freckles mm-hmm. are in now. Now that we've been markalized, I think we're good. <laughs> so um joe wants to fight joe's first instinct is to fight of course you know if this heart condition were a thing one could punch she would win because she's all about it but beth is of course more realistic um about it it's not a thing that you're able to help me with them every day she's losing a little ground and she's just not going to get it back and then she says some words that I'm not touching with a 10-foot pole. She says, this is what God wants, Joe. And Joe says, he can't be that cruel. And I literally have. I am not talking about this anymore.
1: No, <laughs> I'm not either. I, I actually, what I thought was, yep, Beckett is a Joe. <laughs> so Beth has Joe promised to
0: look after Marmy and father. And the subtext here is... After I'm gone, it could have been very grim, but somehow ends up being very sweet. I don't even feel that sad. It feels like Beth did the right thing and said it in the right way as much as she could to tell Joe her dark secrets, um, which she seems to have come to terms with.
1: Yeah, I agree. And even the way they're sitting, Joe's head is in Beth's lap. You know, Beth is being like the the caretaker. She's caring for Joe in that moment. And Joe didn't even know it. She thought they were just sorting seashells. Wow, there's a tongue twister. Mm -hmm. Sorting sorting seashells by the seashore. Um, Okay,
0: say sorting seashells by the seashore with the Duchess of Sussex.
1: (laughs) Sorting seashells by the seashore with the Duchess of Sussex.
0: That is the hardest name to say. (laughs) Good point. Good job.
1: Thank you. While that's going on, Amy and Lori meet in France to talk about their respective art. So if this is book accurate,
0: this is Nice in France. Um, And I want to just bring in an episode of the History Chicks here. In this place where they are feeding the peacocks, Amy heard tales of the visiting queen of the Sandwich Islands. Do you know who the queen of the Sandwich Islands is? That is Queen Liliuokalani of Hawaii, formerly called the Sandwich Islands. So I cannot believe we are able to connect Queen Liliuokalani Kalani and little women. But nevertheless,
1: Amy is in the same place. <laughs> There's like angels singing in the background. I'm bowing. You connected them. I'm glad that I was in your presence. (laughs) while You did so. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that's true. Wow. If you've never listened to that story, please, please do.
0: Well, okay. So this is a place called Castle Hill and we can link you to some photos of that picturesque spot but moving on laurie comes up and says hello miss march or he says or should it be bonjour mademoiselle and i would like for you to watch aunt carol when amy hugs laurie she grabs a hold of her daughter's arm for dear life like <laughs> do not regard your hossified cousin and her oh behavior like <laughs> oh no i don't know what's happening to the youth of today <laughs> Poor Florence has no chance, by the way.
1: None at all.
0: (laughs) So Amy says in French, question mark, that Marmy wrote that he was in Siena, like I didn't expect you. And evidently her French is as messed up as her English because the very next thing she says while she and Lori are walking is that she has made Herculaneum efforts. (laughs) So Herculaneum is either an ancient city in Italy victim of Pompeii, or a town in Missouri, population 3,468. Salute. What Amy actually means is Herculean, or Herculean, depending on your accent, requiring great strength or effort.
1: I thought Larry looked really dapper in his longer jacket.
0: He Yes, he is a very stylish man. He is on the grand tour and has money to burn in that regard. <laughs> um, I do believe he has been to London to see his tailor. Uh, Amy and Laurie are walking around, and Amy is sort of confessing that due to the fact that she has been copying geniuses, she is slowly starting to realize that she may not in fact be a genius, but instead only a dabbler in art. And that is sort of a bummer to realize, given her burning desire to have been a genius her whole life. And Lori says the same about his music. (laughs) They are two peas in a pot,
1: Definitely. And they're not arguing peas. They're, you know, happy peas.
0: (laughs) Happy peas. Now, we are 100% missing the whole Amy's about to marry English Fred Vaughn from the picnic in the Wayback Machine um, and be an ornament to society subplot here we are missing the credible competitor for his affections right
1: that would have been nice
0: yeah that's i mean there's no tension here at all all we get is the first you know hey look <laughs> theoretically but it's not the first though because of the misplaced casting we have had amy weirdly putting the mac on Lori through each and every episode so we have really lessened the impact of this first revelation that amy's a woman now because she's been a woman the whole time
1: i know i was so disappointed because that's a great moment and it was lost to us Mm -hmm. joe and beth return home but beth has to be rushed into both the house and bed and then it's marmy's turn to face beth's truth Insert knife in heart here.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it seems like at the beginning of this, even the camera work is different, more urgent, more, um, I don't know if it's sped up or just uh, everyone's running. Um, they're hustling her to bed. And Marmy is trying to normalize things upstairs. She, they're tucking Beth into bed. And she's trying to make conversation about there's more kittens. And Hannah's going to put him through the mangle. <laughs> and Beth just lays it out there. Marmy I'm sick and I'm not going to get better. Marmy knows in her heart and she runs to her room and shuts the door and oh my goodness, Emily Watson is ringing out my freaking heart. She is so upset that she starts saying random things like you do when you're just in grief. Joe is there to hear it, but she would have said it to no one. She was the one I never made plans for. I couldn't imagine her married. I couldn't imagine her with a baby. She would have never left home and And I could keep her safe. And then this is when I just started like, now she's going to go so far away
1: and I won't be able to protect her and she will need me. I know, me too. I even wrote, lost it here on that line. And Emily Watson earned her salary in this scene, just the way she runs so... uh, frantically from Beth's room to her own room not wanting her kids to see her be emotional I mean that's what she's done this whole time and then, oh my god we're not gonna get through this are we I couldn't, I couldn't even I'm like concentrate on the wallpaper look at the wallpaper Something which was really nice but <laughs> well okay
0: so I had plans to go with my son Jet to buy something skateboard shoes or something we were gonna go to dinner and you know I just said, let me get to 40 minutes on this thing, you know, that I'm watching for the recapper and then we'll go. And he comes back and realizes that we are not going (laughs) (laughs) with my face. And as a matter of fact, I think I texted you like, hello, I am trapped in my house. Um, I did not even care about Claire Danes, Beth. Uh, Frankly, 1994, Beth didn't care. And I knew this was coming. I've read the book. I've seen many adaptations. I knew Beth was going. But here I am handing my 13-year-old my credit card to buy shoes and order pizza because my face has gone beyond societally acceptable realms. (laughs) <laughs> and I am trapped in the house. And I'm wondering if it's that I wasn't a mother in 1994. And now I am.
1: I don't know. I can tell you that's exactly what it is. I was sitting, where were you when Beth died, right? Um, I was sitting watching it with headphones on in the living room while my boys were all watching sports. And at this point, I am like, like gut crying, sobbing. Uh, I've never done this into a movie before, ever. And my husband's like, Oh, my God. Just tell me, is it real or fiction? (laughs) (laughs) It's fiction, but Beth is just like my daughter. And through the course of this micro-watching that we've done, I kept seeing so many parallels between Beth and my own daughter that I know it doesn't feel like it would have felt, but it's a, definitely a degree on that spectrum of how it would feel if it was actually my own daughter. And that's I was Emily Watson and I was Marmy in that moment. And Beth was my daughter. And I just couldn't deal. I missed the whole next half hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, God, mother- Sorry. <laughs>
0: My eyes are all blurry. Okay. To a lesser degree, I think mothers and fathers feel these little g- grief moments about your child where they're moving into a place where you can't be there. I mean, you know, they're going to kindergarten, they're going to middle school, they go to college, they go to the grown up world. I think we get these little <laughs> moments all along that you have a grief moment like this. Of course, it's less than Marmy's about Beth, who's, you know, taking the ultimate voyage. But I think we do recognize that. In her statement from the heart, like she will need me and I won't be there. And it's us. It really is us. I, uh, yeah, I so evidently I care about this. I was good and wrecked up. So, yes. I, I was too. I was too. Emily Watson does have children, not grown children. Her oldest is the same age as as our boys. Her daughter's 13, not grown up. And then her son seems to be a few years younger, eight or nine. So, you know, she's got the mom background. Yep. She used
1: it. And she, this is so so inspirational. She applied to drama school and was rejected. It's in her IMDb bio. Oh. (laughs) So keep at it, people. We cut to Lori and Amy, who are having a very grown-up evening.
0: So maybe. I'm medium okay with this scene, actually. The whole illusion tool dress material conversation is straight from the book. And I like how Amy, pretentious Amy, um, just goes for it. Yeah, you can pin this over the shabbiest dress. You'll just shine like a moth in the candlelight, which is good. And then she says, unless you don't like moths, there is a touch of the March household, which is hilarious to me. She, mm-hmm. If this had been any man that wasn't Lori in the entirety of Europe, she would have been like, oh, yes. Thank you. You know, the end. Yeah, like, right. There's right. no talk of a shabby dress underneath. There's no talk about how it's cheap. Nothing like that. But she, it's really, you know, certainly no talk of insect life. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I thought it was really good. And he's very touched and Struck by her appearance. So he says, Would you like to dance? And Amy just answers, One usually does at a ball. Now, here is where I would have loved them during episode one to have had Joe and Lori hopping around the dining room at that first party. Um, Like they were just galloping around, bumping into chairs and like being fools.
1: Yes, I completely we missed it when they didn't do it in that first episode. And yep, you are absolutely right. So we do just get the loving looks.
0: We do not get the little spat that Amy and Lori have at this dance where he presumes to be the light of her life. Because he's from home and you know, whatever, and she just books up the rest of her dance card to show him he's not the boss of her. We don't get any of these moments that I think would have been a little character building because what we sense now is like they have officially fallen in love, and then you just check it off. where she punishes him literally. she just, she just <laughs> he comes back for another dance. she's like, so sorry, booked, you know, mm, doesn't talk to him for a long time.
1: So whatever. Well, I was happy to have just a little love moment, I guess. It was very pretty. And and you had just that little, you went from this grief of the scene before to just a little bit of hopefulness. Right. Which was a nice little, uh, you know, palate cleanser, I guess. Right. Let's go right back to Orchard House because Meg, Joe, the babies and kittens are sitting with a tired and ill bath who's been embroidering cornflowers for Amy, lily of the valley for Beth, sunflowers for Joe and white rose for Meg.
0: This is actually from the book where she says the needle is so heavy and puts it down
1: for the last time,
0: though we don't know that in the movie.
1: No, no, we don't. We don't know anything. Um, in the opening, they have that scene, you know, all of the uh, flowers growing. And then I think it ties into this one, although there's one flower that was off. But the cornflowers stand for wealth and prosperity and fortune. I'm going with Victorian floriography, which is the language of flowers um, in the Victorian era. Cornflowers stand for Amy, and that's wealth, prosperity, and fortune. That's on target. Right. Uh, Lilia the Valley for Bath, which is virginity, purity, and new beginnings. Sure, Question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I can I see guess. it. Okay. Sunflower for Joe, which is loyalty and good wishes. Okay. I, I see it. She's very loyal. And a white rose for Meg, which is eternal love and innocence and purity. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If it was me, I would have liked to have seen that as Bath. The white rose is Bath. Right. But But this is Beth that's making this cross stitch and, you know, she decides for herself what flower she is. So that's just, that's very Beth, not to take the white rose and give it to somebody else. That is very generous. That is classic Beth. And the babies are not actually babies anymore. They're toddlers. What do you you think? Like a year and a half maybe? Yeah. Yeah. they're, they're, They're walking around and Joe asked Beth, do the babies tire you? And I'm like, damn, everything tires her. She can't even lift up the needle anymore.
0: And for a long time, I looked at that little kitten. And I was like, is that a taxidermy kitten? Do, I they... do, do do kittens really sit like that? <laughs> I don't know. But then it moved at the end and my illusion was shattered. I thought, did they seriously find, I don't know, whatever. So I don't know how they got it. Maybe it was pure chance to get it to s- stand like that. Or maybe they're terrifying it with something. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs>
1: I don't know. Uh, Oh, Beckett, we have to keep going here.
0: Okay.
1: It's nighttime at Orchard House. The whole family is sitting around Beth's bed for one last time, and I couldn't see the screen. So uh,
0: there is a close-up on Beth's chest, uh, which just killed me. They're opening with that. You know this is going to be rough. They, um, They are awaiting Beth's imminent death. They know it's coming. This is the night. They're all gathered together in a vigil. And Beth's breaths are getting ragged. And then Marmy, man, Marmy says the following. She says, Beth, dear, you're going to have to go on a journey. And she, she keeps her voice light. You mustn't be afraid. You are always braver than you know. Rest, dear, until you're ready. Which proves to me that mothers are selfless freaking
1: heroes. <laughs> i don't know if i could i mean i guess i could because you find that strength in the time but me they did the i don't know if you've ever been around somebody when they die but they do have that that death breathing that really like rattly breathing so this scene they did it they did it really well i'm sorry holy crap i can't even talk about this damn show okay Okay. So if you have
0: a good mother or a grandmother based on this scene alone, I would pause and call her right now. I actually wrote the words, holy shit. (laughs) 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 And um, at this point, I was at the skate park and uh, received the um, alarmed concern and gratifyingly clumsy masculine comfort of a whole skate park full of 13 to 20 year old young men. (laughs) (laughs) so thus thus brings a little background comedy to me um, at this scene which is my clear salvation because I can hold it together a little better Um, the family heard her last breath There has been a theme throughout the little scene breaks often focus on laundry, flapping on the line just as a little visual break from scene to scene. And this is the only time that we see a black piece of clothing flapping on the line. That is our little hint that Beth has died. I will tell you, no matter how much I cried at this scene, it is still not Beth herself I'm upset about. However, it is Marmee. It is this Marmee. Mm-hmm. And Marmee's reaction that makes me feel what I feel. I don't know. Maybe I will never, maybe I will never love Beth enough to cry. But it's Marmy <laughs> that makes me upset.
1: Yeah, because you know that she's telling Beth, go to where I can't be your mother anymore. Yeah. But she's doing so calmly.
0: So really the only thing saving me from falling apart like Susan is the comedic routine I had to go through at the skate park where people are digging ratty old quick trip napkins out of their sad cargo short pockets to hand me and it's it was just really (laughs) bless them. It's good training for having a. A girlfriend, I think, if, if that ever happens for them. I don't know how it goes at the skate park, but um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very delightful, and I'm glad I went through it, because that is something I will never forget. So that is why I'm able to hold it together more than Susan, because...
1: <laughs> well, um, Susan was curled up in her favorite chair watching this thing, sobbing. Okay. My daughter was taking a nap on our bed for some reason, and so I just closed my laptop. I walked upstairs. I laid down in bed with her and I spooned her and held her so tight, still sobbing. And she's like, I don't know what's going on here, but okay. And I actually fell asleep like that because I was just drained. That's how bad it was. I have never had this reaction for any kind of media before, ever.
0: Well, it did push our buttons. We would be interested to know where were you when Beth died um, and what was happening and did it even hit you? I mean, were you just like Claire Danes? And, eh. you know, like, yeah. were you like that? I'd be interested to know. Um, so looking forward to those responses.
1: But in Italy, Laurie has to share the devastating news with Amy.
0: And honestly, it's just his face. It is just his face. Um, Joe, Wrote him a telegram and she said, take care of her, Teddy. He walks in the room and doesn't have to say anything. Amy knows. Yep. We don't even have to go
1: into it. Nope. Oh. We did get a date, though. There's a date on the telegram of September 13th, 1868. So that was nice. I was always I was wondering through this whole episode, like how out of the Civil War were we? You know, we know it's over, but how over is it? So about three years.
0: Uh, In case you're wondering if there's a parallel to uh, Louisa May Alcott's life, there sort of is. She had a sister named Elizabeth that did die early um, as a young woman, but not in September and not in that year.
1: So there you go. Yeah, she died way back in 1858 at 22. But she died from the same thing that Beth died from. I mean, Louisa May Alcott was writing from real life, but she had had scarlet fever and it weakened her system and she died two years later. So. That was exactly like Beth, even in the name. They called her Lizzie, but they also called her Beth. So, I mean, the name is right spot on. But her personality, it sounds just like the Beth in the book and in every single adaptation.
0: So we do get a quick vision of Joe sweeping. Um, Joe has no one now. She has pushed Laurie away, rightfully so, really. But she's pushed Laurie away. She can't rely on her mother and father who are immersed in their own grief. Amy's gone. I don't know how much comfort she would have been. Um, And Beth is her one major confidant who's gone, really gone.
1: Um, So Joe is all alone. She has no one. I know. And everything's dying. She's sweeping dead flowers and debris, you know, organic matter. It's just a sunny day, but it's filled with so much heartache. It's just like reality. You know, you go to these uh, funeral of someone you love and it's a beautiful day out. And just the contrast between the two emotions always gets me weird. So should we go back to Italy? All right. Uh, All right. In Italy, Lori and Amy talk about death and Beth, and the reality of all of it. And Laurie makes more promises to Amy.
0: Well, evidently, Amy can't cry. She, I don't know what that story is, but she's remembering the will she wrote way back while she was still the exact same age. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I put, note to self, need child actor to pull off this reminiscence. Um, We're belaboring that point. But nevertheless, it's true. She does say that she thought, because she had been thinking about Beth's death for many years, and she thought that it would burn her down like a house on fire. But in fact, no, she feels frozen.
1: And then Lori promises to come see her every day. And this is the closest to black we see her in the rest of this entire show. The rest of the family is all wearing black. That's obvious. And she's wearing gray. And that's the closest she gets to morning clothes at all. So are we supposed to take away from this that she's cold hearted or that she's such a master of her emotions that she's already played this out so many times in her mind that she's experienced it? Or maybe it's just one of those, you know, stages of grief, the denial thing. I don't know. I had all three of those takeaways. (laughs) I'm not sure. And
0: then I was thinking her aunt is such a stickler for propriety that I'm surprised that she's not in full mourning, given that propriety. I don't know. I'm...
1: Who would buy the clothes,
0: though? Mrs. Or Aunt Carol buys the clothes. She's She comes back in full silk head to toe. Somebody's paying the bills. So I yes. think it's actually it's Aunt March now that I think about it, because in the book, Aunt March says, Mary, you should do it and I will pay her expenses. So it's actually Aunt March that's buying the clothes.
1: So, yeah, she could afford a morning suit. Hmm, curious. I don't know. But my lasting impression is that she's cold hearted.
0: Mm -hmm. which is maybe not what they wanted to put out, but it's kind of where I'm, yeah, that's kind of where I'm landing too.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to say. Back in Concord, uh, Joe brings Beth's sewing basket to father and he gives her advice about going forward in her life and suggests that the greatest gift she can give herself is to write through her grief.
0: It's actually a shocking moment of good advice from the father figure in this family. She comes in with a sewing basket that is Beth's And says that Marmee does not think this should sit in my room anymore. And I was going to put it in the living room. And I really don't want it to surprise me. I don't want to come across it unexpectedly. I need to keep it, but not in a place where I'll, I'll pass by. And he says it can live in his study with him. And then she just begs him, help me. She says, help me. And he actually has some good advice that writing is her therapy. She has to do it. She has to sift down through this grief because there are words there at the bottom. There is a woman there at the bottom of all the grief. And she's like, I don't even know what to say. What (laughs) words are supposed to come out? He just says, say what is true say you were happy once
1: I actually wrote down this is the most grounded helpful advice this character gives the whole show <laughs> because it is it's really good advice and it takes his view of writing that it's an art and there's an emotional process to it and tells her that she ha- she can have that she can have that moment with her writing right now Because she has so much emotion, you know, something she doesn't ever have because she looks at writing as a job, as something she, a chore, something she has to get through to get to something else. So I thought this was a good combination. I mean, it's sad, but a good combination of the two, like more, maybe a healthier balance. I don't know. Maybe I'm putting too much into it. Well, so we hear as a sort of voiceover as
0: Joe begins to write a poem called My Beth. And we do hear a verse of it. She's actually asking her departed sister to leave me, Joe, um... In your will, as you go, please those virtues which have beautified your life. Please bequeath me that great patience which has power to sustain a cheerful, uncomplaining spirit in its prison house of pain. Give me, for I need it sorely, of that courage, wise and sweet, which has made the path of duty green beneath your willing feet. Give me that unselfish nature that with charity divine can pardon wrong for love's dear sake. Meek heart, forgive me mine. It's very touching, like, please leave me your legacy of, like, duty and selflessness and all the best parts
1: of yourself, which I need desperately Mm -hmm. and I don't have. Yeah, it's beautiful. I will link you up to the poem. It was in the book. And then they're showing images, you know, of the babies playing and life just starting to go on. You know, the family's all in mourning clothes, of course, but there's life going on. There's babies playing in the meadow and there's a white rose growing on that trellis that Meg finds. And, you know, Joe is actually writing up in her garret where she should be writing. (laughs) So. It's just, there's just these scenes throughout this. I I thought it was beautiful. And it, and this whole uh, poem scenes ends with Joe mailing a letter off to Godey's ladies book in Philadelphia.
0: And I'm trying to figure out if it cost a penny or a dime, whatever coin that was. It only cost one of them to mail.
1: Oh, I can't imagine it was a dime, right? I mean, I, I think I remember dime postage at some point in my (laughs) life. Oh my gosh. I'm totally aging myself here. (sighs) (laughs) okay so let's settle
0: on a penny
1: (laughs) let's settle on the penny and move on it is christmas time again joe's poem has been published and it led to more writing assignments but not a relief from her grief but meg now has some advice for joe
0: meg loved it meg loved it she is so proud of her and Obviously, the Goatee's editor did, too, because he wants more. And his reasoning is because this poem was pure and warm and honest. A 360 degree pivot from anything that ever made it into the Daily Volcano. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's far more respectable to be in Godey's ladies book. I <laughs> imagine that. Um, Meg is really supportive. You know, cut it out, pin it up over your desk to show you what you have the power to do. And then <laughs> this is like Clumsy Joe again. Joe goes, I just broke my scissors. I can't cut it out. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. And there is a very touching scene where she goes, she goes to the sewing box that she just gave to Father for safekeeping, and uses, I think, very appropriately, Beth's scissors to cut it out.
1: Do you do that? Do you cut things out like that for inspiration? I don't know where you'd hang them.
0: Um, I used to have a uh, like a design board at work. Yes, I don't really do that in my current. Life. That's kind of what Pinterest is for I would in my life now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's probably why I don't do so good on Pinterest because I am definitely a cutter outer. I mean, just even in my little nook here, I have stuff written on the walls. (laughs) The conversations that we've had, it's like, oh yeah, that's really good. Like never apologize. Never explain. Julia Child is written right in front of me. (laughs) Interesting. yeah. And I mean, I have some of my own work pinned up that I was especially proud of. I have a Maya Angelou poem. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I love I'm a I'm a clutterer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm a clutterer, but not of clippings.
1: <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a clipping clutterer. clutterer. OK, in case you're wondering, in Victorian era, which we're close enough um, It's two full years of mourning for widows, but for siblings, it's six months and if it was your child, a year. So everybody's still wearing modified mourning clothes. It's not black, black um, for everyone, but um, they're still in mourning because it's proper. We get quick shots of Joe and a man putting the poem into very special places. And then Joe opens a book that Professor Bear had given her and she finds some treasures inside.
0: We see that Joe has pressed his flowers in her Shakespeare book and my grandma used to do that. We would find them all over the place. Um, She would do it and forget about it, I think. Um, While we were reading at her house, we would find a lot and lots of pressed flowers. And I am thinking maybe I'll go press a couple of these roses out here because all my flowers are not going to make it through this Spring equals summer type of
1: situation that we are having right now with 100 degree May. I know. That's a good idea. I put mine in a bowl and dry them like potpourri. Lori and Amy sail paper boats. They define their relationship and there's kissing and I'm sorry, Beckett, bare feet.
0: Well... I don't care about the bare feet. What I do care about is that this is another one of those relatively play-like scenes. This is another one of those relatively play-like scenes. Like, I mean, no offense to high school plays, but it is just stilted like that. It is, you know, herder the boats, you know, I I don't like it. I don't like this scene. I'm not buying it. Um I quite like those boats sitting there side by side. Says Laurie On the same journey, says Amy. Yes, says Lori. Can we make it last forever? And the heart-swelling cello music happens, but I am not
1: investing in this relationship. I'm not. I'm not either. I'm with you. My first thought was, oh, that's a really pretty dress she's got on. And then I'm like, wait a second, it's not black. And then I lost it for the whole rest of the thing. I'm glad that we're finally aged up to the actress's age, but yeah. I had a hard time with it. I'm so, I want to love it. I do. It was cute, I thought. I didn't take it as play-like as you did, but.
0: The thing is, I mean, the boat thing is a little nod to what happened in the book, which is they were rowing in a boat, i.e. I think Lori was rowing. I can't remember exactly, but it's like, um, we pull together well in this boat. We should pull together for the rest of our lives. So there is a little homage to boatness. <laughs> So I guess I'm going to give him that. But I just here's the problem. I mean, this might have been a fine scene had we had any foundation to build upon. But we haven't. Yes, I
1: completely agree. And all three hours of it, we have not. So I don't care. The end. <laughs> Plus, I'm still gutted from Beth's dying. So I, I want to be happy for people. I just can't. A letter arrives at Orchard House and Joe comes to terms with the engagement news of Amy and Lori.
0: Marmy is justifiably, I think, worried that Joe might be upset by this news and in fact might have been hoping that Lori would ask her to marry him again. She's been so... Lonely. Um, and they had been so close. And Joe does concur that she's afraid. She was has been living in fear that Lori would come back and ask her again, because this time she might have cracked, actually, for the same reason that Marmee thought she would, in fact, accept. Yes, out of loneliness, maybe, Or just a desire to be taken care of. The wrong reasons, Joe says. So no, the fact that Amy married Lori is a good thing all the way
1: around. And that's reassuring. Yeah, I thought so too. I don't really have anything to add. Although I did think there was a little carving on the post that the mailbox was attached to that I thought was very charming. Like it was a carved post for the mailbox. It didn't have to be carved. Just a little detail that caught my eye because I had to freeze frame it there. <laughs> I was like, oh, look at that. That's cute. Okay. The next scene is beautiful country life with sweet little children. The marches and the brooks welcome Amy and Lori home, and they have big news, and everyone's happy. So you see Joe
0: through this. The loneliness is coming out. She's washing dishes, and she's almost... Limping, I can't explain it. She's like walking stiffly as if she's in pain as she comes out. She's just in a place um, in the depth of depression, I guess, you know, where you are kind of all your muscles are kind of tightened up and she's just really walking differently even. And so the European arrivals show up at the house and Meg is the one that notices, hey, that's not an engagement ring. And then Lori says that she has a sapphire from Chopard as big as a pigeon's egg. And then Amy says, but I can't get a glove on over it. Ha, ha, ha! And I was not aware that Chopard made, I mean, they do now, but I think they started out as a watch manufacturer. So they made like mechanical things like watches and um, music boxes. I didn't think they made jewelry back then. I could be wrong. Maybe I should make a phone call to Chopard <laughs> and um, double check because I was actually kind of thrown by that. And I skipped right over it. <laughs> uh, so Marmy says, that's a wedding ring. Well done, says father. And there is a super strange look by Lori between Joe's face and Amy's face. And I started to become a little worried about him right then. Because you think that he settled for any march?
1: Any march in a storm? I don't know.
0: I mean, I know in the book he was looking at a picture of Mozart when he was in Europe and saying, well, Mozart couldn't get the first sister and took the second and seemed
1: perfectly happy. Literally, that is in the source material. I think this could be read if you're just watching the movie as she's coming outside. um, She's acting weird because she doesn't know how she's going to feel. You know, is she going to be happy for them? You don't know until the moment. You know, it's all theory until it happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that look I would take is the same thing—the look from Lori to Joe. It's like, okay, how are we? Are we cool here? Right. I think that I think it could be read that way in this interpretation or this adaptation. I M H O. Okay. Lori and Joe have a reflective visit in the garret, and he tells her how he now feels about her. And that he possesses both hindsight and a wife.
0: So he kind of busts in as he always did, and he said, Is genius burning or are you up for a visit? And she's like, Okay, I'm always up for a visit from you, but I'm not sure how many more surprises I can bear. And here is where I got worried again. And this is just delivery and writing i don't know i got worried again even though i know the story i was trying to see this as you know a newcomer might see it and he says i have to get back to my wife soon yeah (laughs) okay but there's something i have to say once and then put it by forever and i i'm like oh no oh no he says i will love you until the day i die joe And I thought, that's not good. But then he adds on, ineffectually, I think, you are my sister and she is. And then Joe says, Mrs. Lawrence. And then there's a very weird and awkward moment to me. Yeah.
1: No, me too. Me too. Look, like her face, she looks like she's anticipating him to say something. Like the one thing we we probably thought he was going to say, right? I still love you, but I can't have you, so I'll have... Amy. But yeah, she had a weird look on her face. It was very awkward. Agreed.
0: So then Lori asks if they could just go back to being happy. And then Joe simply answers, no, we were children before and we are not children anymore. Bringing everyone under her little dark cloud seems to be the goal. And in the book, this scene goes on a lot longer. A lot more is hashed out and it ends reassuringly <laughs> do you know what i'm saying <laughs> it ends comfortably um i frankly as a fan of little women and a person who knows this story literally resent i mean i feel resentment the way this was left so there i mean i feel <laughs> i feel um jerked around i don't know there's just short more...
1: like short changed that the characters aren't portrayed traditionally
0: no i just feel like we are being led in a direction that i don't think we need to be led in it's fine if they're friends you know what i mean it's Mm fine if there's nothing that joe has romantically for him it's fine that they've changed places in his heart you know that amy used to be the sister and joe used to be the love interest and now they've changed places that's fine i think it's fine to get back there But somehow the movie doesn't want us to understand that it's fine. I don't know. It's bothering me.
1: Or maybe they think they they made it there. Like they think that was accomplished. And and we are going, no, I don't think so.
0: I'm just, I'm left with the impression, again, that there is something pending.
1: Oh, that would be a racy book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tragic book.
1: Yeah. Joe races to Aunt March's house and... Aunt March has had a stroke, but the two bond over their shared role as aunts, and Aunt March has some parting wisdom for her niece. So
0: I like how uh, Joe is, you know, opening the soup, talking, and Aunt March says, Oh, you're ordering your elders around and fiddling with sick people. You've turned into an old maid, Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> and then Joe says, I prefer to think of myself as a literary spinster and um there is a little bonding aunt march just looks at joe and how careworn she is i think and she says the world should be kinder to us aunts but then joe just lets it out she says my life is small aunt march so small so narrow i feel it closing in on me like walls i wasn't meant for a life like this and it's so strange but yet beautiful, I think, for her to confide in this person, the deepest secret of her whole heart. She can't even tell Marmy. I, I, I just think there's an irony in it. And um, I really like it that it humanizes Aunt March here right at the end, too, because Aunt March answers that better times will come.
1: Yeah, Angela Lansbury did a great job with this. And I love that Aunt March was still you know, unfiltered and cranky kind of in her last moments, you know, she's all she's had a stroke. And this is not good. Even though she says she'll be fine. We know she probably won't be fine. Maybe Joe saw herself more as time has gone on than she did when she was her companion. You know, maybe she saw herself in Aunt March a lot more. You know, unfiltered, sure. Say whatever is on your mind, sure. You know, say it loud and proud and no apologies. Check, check, check. It's turned into a very rainy day and Joe encounters a man on the road. It's Professor Bear and he has something to tell her.
0: So, Joe is still in her fog of despair, and wouldn't that Macintosh <laughs> be so useful right now? Because when you hit a rainstorm, you are just drenched. There <laughs> is no more. There's no sense even walking quickly, because there's nothing to be done. <laughs> you are nope. wet. The end. Um, so, she's surprised when she sees his feet, because she's looking down, and looks up to see some man standing in the street with an umbrella, Mr. Bear what in heaven's name Has brought you here And he says business Like business of the heart oh. <laughs> He doesn't say that um, He just says You said you'd come back And all she has to mention is that she told Beth she would stay because, in fact, he keeps her poem, the poem she wrote, called My Beth, against his heart. And he knows the ending. You know, he knows what happened to Beth just having read that poem. I don't want to complicate it necessarily by saying that in the book, it's a different poem that he has in his pocket, (laughs) but I kind of do. I kind of do because he came back when he read a certain phrase and he wants her to guess which phrase it is. And um, Joe had written this poem about four little chests all in a row and the things that relate to each sister that were in each box, you know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? So the, the, the phrase that brought Mr. Bear to her was the box that was supposed to be Joe um, that says, Diaries of a willful child, hints of a woman, early old, a woman in a lonely home, hearing like a sad refrain, Be worthy, love, and love will come in the falling summer rain. And he took that to mean that she was yearning for something that he thought he could and wanted to provide to her and um, realized that she was very, very lonely. And that's the poem that he kept against his heart. So there is freaking more chemistry here than between Amy and Lori, frankly. <laughs> There's more chemistry in this nothing that they have together than in any relationship.
1: Ever. I agree. I completely agree. If they could have shown that little bit of that spark with Laurie and Amy, then that would have gone a long way. <laughs> They're good for each other. I've always thought they were good for each other. There wasn't. Ne- I know we're supposed to read Professor Bear as kind of this, you know, anti-hero guy and just burly and not what you'd expect to bring home to your parents. But I always liked him. Me too. I- I always thought that he was sweet and perfect for her because he could compete with her on an intellectual level. And he made her happy. And he's very thoughtful, I think, in a way that Lori never
0: had been. Very um, steadfast and calm. And heck, his sister died and he is raising her two children as a single man parent. In this day and age, that's not uh, a very usual situation.
1: No, not at all. So
0: Joe takes him in the house he worries i you have company And she said, it's just the family. Just come in. Just the family. You're welcome. And she brings him in. And she, unlike him, who has been under the umbrella, is soaking wet and has to go up and change. And when she is coming downstairs, Amy, the fashion plate, is down at the bottom of the stairs. And she's like, I forgot how to do my hair in the pretty way. We haven't seen her with not messy hair in years, frankly. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's what I said. I'm like, when did you do
1: it that way? (laughs)
0: Uh, And then Amy grabs her arm and says, there is no need. You are beautiful. And then
1: she whispers,
0: everybody really likes him.
1: (laughs) That was cute. I like that.
0: Uh, Me too. That's like the one. Can we bring more of this, Amy? This sisterly, like confiding on your side Amy I liked it and then and so then she goes in and Mr. Bear and Joe are to sing their song and they hold hands in front of Marmy and everybody <laughs> <laughs> well I mean she's 25 years old and he's 45 so if they can't hold hands by now I guess
1: that's right and it, yeah yeah <laughs>
0: But I do miss, um, I miss the relationship slowly growing. Again, we're whisked right on past it, but I, I can accept that
1: they are in love and love each other. That's good. Yeah, I accept it too. And I understand why they, the uh, creators of the show focused more on, you know, Beth and that whole thing. I understand it. You have to pick things. You have to pick and choose. It's got to be an incredibly hard decision when you have this big, you know, To make that book into a movie, it would be hours and hours. It's gone with the wind, right? So, yeah, you have to pick and choose. And I don't think I'd want to be the person that had to do that. Swoosh! It's years later. The Multiplied Clan have an apple picnic at the Bear Academy. And they epilogue the story. And it's happily ever after for our now older but eternally little women. So
0: Aunt March has left her house Plumfield to Joe. We see two plums on a branch. That's an Easter egg. Plumfield, clever. It is, I mean, that's not sarcastic. I actually thought that was clever. Yeah.
1: Yes, it was a very nice nod.
0: <laughs> it was a little wink, wink. So uh, it's five years later and Joe is 30 years old. Um, this is actually Marmy's 60th birthday in the book. And Joe's kids are named Rob after her father and Teddy after Teddy. They have turned Aunt March's house into an academy for
1: only boy children,
0: as indicated by her desire to teach boys so long ago.
1: And their slogan on the sign says, unity, liberty, and charity.
0: And so, um, Jo, the marm, they call her uh, Mother Bear, is um, arranging things at the picnic and finally comes to sit by her own family and... And they look around and they're absorbing the scene. And Marmee looks so proudly at Joe. She, I think she's very glad that her (laughs) wild creature has finally found a sphere that she is happy in. And then Joe says, nothing's ever perfect, but things can be just right. And then Marmee says, yes, they can now see though this scene don't you want to read little men you just got a tiny taste of it in this mm-hmm. scene although i will tell you this was the end of little women so don't think we have transcended into another book i this was written of course before anyone knew there was going to be a sequel so you kind of had to wrap it up and this little flash forward is a very common you know what happened to our old friends mm-hmm. so until you're going to flesh it out in a whole book this was a good little picture into their future life but I do not like, sorry, this is a book criticism, I have a feeling, I do not like for the same reason I don't like The End of Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. I don't like the end game here where she, quote, realizes that her castle in the air, which is writing, was some kind of frivolous dream and this reality of being the school matron to a bunch of boys and having children and a husband of her own is, quote, the real thing. I don't like that and you know jane austen gave marianne to colonel brandon to complete the circle and please her readers i think and well that's it i guess i'm a little frustrated i understand why they do it because you know your readers clamor for certain kinds of endings and just so you know by the way joe's dream is realized but not until two sequels later in joe's boys and that is, not, that is not a movie defect. That's a source material defect. And and Louisa May Alcott does rectify it. Probably when her fame transcended the publisher's hold on her and she could do what she wanted. She always wanted Joe to be a literary spinster. So she finally made her a famous authoress. Very nice.
1: Very nice. Yeah. I I have really nothing to add to that. I I agree.
0: So there were some truly great things about this adaptation. Emily Watson being first and foremost gold medal to Emily Watson for ringing my emotions and spirits to the doom that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, well, and you know what? It wasn't just Emily Watson. It was the writers for that scene. It was the lighting crew, it was the set people. I mean, they all worked together so amazingly in that that scene, that, that set of scenes, I don't know what you call it, that portion of this show. Um, it's like where they super clicked, you know? And yeah, for that, I, I can't tell you if I like or dislike this adaptation because of that scene. I was going through, watching it the first time, trying to figure it out, and I was leaning toward, eh, it was okay. And then that scene happened. So now I don't even know how to characterize it.
0: Well, I I know that someone thought we were being too negative about this series. And I do feel like we... At least I, I can only speak for myself. Am feeling pretty negative toward it, actually. I, uh, for one thing, no one took a chemistry test, and I don't <laughs> mean like you know hydrogen and oxygen and whatnot. Um, I just do not know. I don't, I don't buy nearly all of it. I actually would have loved to see more Mister Bear that had potential. We saw more of Gabriel Byrne in a shorter movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had time. Ah. Uh, I mean, we needed more or at least better Amy and Lori. And I'm still left with the impression that he's still in love with Joe and took second best. And that's not good. I don't think that's what they wanted to leave me with. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I feel glad I saw it. There is some Louisa May Alcott secret, you know, secret knowledge for people who know her life that I really genuinely appreciated. And a little, perhaps more realism. I, I don't know why the whole tinkling in the chamber pot back at the dance. I was like, <laughs> well, my goodness, hello. And um, the whole scene after Meg gave birth where she's being cleaned up. I mean, I li- there were elements of realism. I like all of Hannah. Um, <laughs> I like the, you know, the expose into how the poor were really living. I just missed a lot of... I guess you put your finger on it earlier, character development that would make me care
1: about people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I can't say if I liked it or I didn't like it because it's not fair to either end. I can't say that, oh, I like this adaptation and people would go, oh, great. It's a great adaptation based on that one sentence. (laughs) And if I said I didn't like it, it criticizes the whole thing. And like you just pointed out, there were elements of this that I thought were just brilliant. And then there was the rest. Well,
0: okay. I guess I will submit my review then. There's too much missing. There's not enough magic. I love Maya Hawk. Long may she act. I also love the Beth casting. Um, I will likely not watch it again.
1: Oh, I won't watch it again. Oh, there's there's no question about that.
0: Now, whereas I will watch 1994 again, even though I'm constantly bothered by some of the casting, um <laughs> all in all, it had more I I just don't know. I don't what I don't know what the missing element was. I feel I could not make a movie. So Who am I? I'm, you know, here I am, the food critic that can't cook or whatever. But um, so I can't make any sort of movie. So mine would suck worse than this. So take comfort in that. Um, So I don't mean to tear anybody's work down necessarily, but I just um, I just don't know. It's not maybe for me. I don't I didn't really like it. The end.
1: I don't I don't know. I just didn't really like it. It was not my favorite adaptation. I think that um, the greatest one is still to be made. Ooh,
0: yeah, I think there's got to be some time passing, though.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, there definitely has to
0: be some time. I don't think anyone's going to ramp right up and do that, so <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave it on
1: this. I know. Well, did you watch the Orchard House special that w- went along with this? I didn't. Oh, it was it was charming. You got to go into... Orchard House, and you got a glimpse of her life there, her writing desk. Um, it's narrated by the woman I, who's the executive director, question mark, um, of Orchard House. And Annie Leibovitz is in it taking pictures. How awesome was that? I, it was beautifully shot. The The production value was super high. Um, they got Orchard House at the perfect time. The flora. <laughs> Um so it was really it was I loved it I thought it was a great little um documentary to add on to this, so if you didn't see it, you should try and find it. I don't have anything else positive. I was trying to end on a positive note. <laughs> I know. I hate to be so,
0: you know, I hate to be so negative, but I don't want to give anyone a false impression that we are um, like super gung ho. Yeah. So um, links, I have got the Angel, which is a short story by Hans Christian Andersen. We've got the Constant Ten Soldier, which would be a ditto, and then um, Louisa May Alcott's quote failed novel moods um is on project gutenberg so you can read that whole thing for free online and then if you want you can go look and discover all things hegel at philosophybasics.com i don't oh. know
1: i'm interested to see how many of you <laughs> are
0: really wanting to go down that particular
1: rabbit hole <laughs> let's see what extra did i have i have uh a site with victorian floral meanings floriology i i've <laughs> I find it so fascinating, but I'm a plant gal. That Mark Stanley YouTube video with the bouncy song, it's called Hold On. Um, This is timed. This is going to date the show. But if there's ever an opportunity to see the opera production of (laughs) uh, Little Women, you should do it. There is one in Atlanta. Uh, and June 15th and 16th. I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> One of our listeners, she's like, oh my gosh, we're doing this. We're staging it. Harover Summer Opera in Atlanta. <laughs> what do you know? I know. What? How timely. Now, this is the
0: 150th anniversary of the first publication of Little Women. So- as events come up throughout the year, I do believe the initial publishing date was in September, which is when I genuinely thought PBS was going to air this series. But alas, um, I don't know. I don't know what's coming back. <laughs> down, Nabby. Maybe the Americans will premiere in September and they didn't uh, feel like they could compete. I actually don't know what is happening in September. But um, so events should be popping up especially in the Concord area, and we will update you via our various social media as they occur. All
1: right. I've got nothing else.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. We are very interested in dissenting opinions. I am willing to be convinced out of my funk on this one. um, Certainly, I would like to be left with a better impression. So if you would like to take issue... Um, with anything <laughs> that I said. I mean, if, if, if you want to argue with Susan, you've got to take that up with her. But, uh, if, <laughs> <laughs> but I am down to talk about anything regarding this series. So catch us on The Recapery on Facebook. On Twitter, you're going to encounter Susan. So if you want to talk to me, catch us on Facebook. And we will see you next time with a new and entirely not decided upon project. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.